Ken, as a tenured professor in your mid-40s, what made you think that you could change careers? Well, this is America, and you can do whatever you want to do. It's one of the great things about this country. And uh, I was, uh, what I was doing was very related to a career I'm in now. It was developing stories, developing writers, and of course, teaching a number of things that I no longer teach, like classical literature and Italian literature. Uh, and I do miss I do do miss that part, but it was basically an extension of what I've been doing all of my life, which is developing stories, analyzing stories, publishing stories, helping people publish stories, uh, and now getting stories produced into movies. So it's all united by storytelling. Uh, I had no idea which world was sort of the big, bigger world of ideas, the world of academia that I'd been in for 17 years or the world I went into. And I discovered that the world I went into was really the world of ideas because it's a world in which people are tracking ideas across continents to find out who owns the rights to a story. They're, you know, they, they pay lots of money to acquire the story, at least they used to pay lots of money. Uh, and they spend millions of dollars to turn the story into a movie. Um, and they're fiercely competitive about the world of ideas. It's, it, the motion picture business is the jungle of ideas and uh, it's survival of the, the best idea and the best business people. I always say it's, it's called show business for a reason. It's not just about show, it's about the business of how stories get developed into movies that the whole world can see. I'm hoping we can go back to maybe right before you made this transition into wanting to be in film. Um, was there something that happened? Was there just a time in your life, in your mid-40s, where you just felt like, you know what, I, I want a new challenge? You know, that's a good question because it's, <clears throat> I, it, I've reflected on it all my life since then. And it was actually provoked by my receiving tenure. Uh, I actually belong to a untenured faculty committee against tenure. Uh, and one day when I was a Fulbright professor in Bologna, Italy, I got a telegram from the dean of the faculty at Occidental College telling me that I'd received tenure in my absence. And my reaction to it was not very understandable to my friends and colleagues. I, I became deeply depressed for about a year. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out why I was depressed and it was because I'd really never asked to be in this golden cage where nothing can happen to you. Uh, it was like the most secure place you could be. And I realized at the time that my father's chief value in life was security. He was a child of the depression and security was all important to him. And I, I had to admit to myself that it wasn't that important to me. I never worried about being secure. I published lots of things and I was in demand as a speaker and just never had to worry about it. Um, and what my value was, was freedom. And I didn't feel freedom when in, under a, a structure where you had to behave a certain way and you had to know a year in advance that on the week of October 12th, you'd be teaching book eight of the Iliad. Um, and that it was wonderful to be teaching the Iliad, but to have to, to know that a year in advance you're going to be somewhere. 
I now live in a world where I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow, literally, and, and, and it's complete opposite. It's a world, it's a free world. And of course, I realized as I got older that uh, freedom is as much an illusion as security. Both of them are illusions, but it was my illusion. Security was not my illusion. And uh, so I've lived com with complete insecurity, but with the freedom to express myself creatively in every possible way, which is what the film business uh, allows me to do. And so that was very exciting to me. Do you ever tell people that, that if they're looking to be in a creative pursuit, whether it's being an author or screenwriter, actor, that security is something that will probably not be part of what they'll encounter <laughs> and to yeah. be okay with that? Absolutely. I mean, this is not a career to wish on anyone. You have to have a burning desire to do it and you have to be willing to sacrifice anything to do it and to persist despite every setback. And I can tell you that this is a, a business in which, a career in which this never gets easier. I don't care how many movies you've done, the next one is gonna be the biggest challenge you've ever faced. Uh, the world changes all the time. It's been changing ever since I've been in it, which is around 30 years now. And uh, it never gets any easier and it never gets any more secure. And you know, even if you had windfalls, lots of money, you would put it into your next, you know, your next project because people in this business believe in what they're doing. That's their most important common uh, belief. And you can see it at the Academy Awards. You, you hear the stories as they receive rewards that they never thought they'd get or have been waiting for a lifetime for. Uh, they all have one thing in common, the, the ability to sacrifice uh, what everyone else considers the most important things in order to achieve the dream of getting the story told to the whole world. And that's, that's the, the great thing about the career. There's no limits to it. It's infinitely challenging. It's constantly challenging. There are surprises every day. Uh, and it's completely unpredictable. I'm almost thinking of a, a sales position like door to door where you have to just suit up and, and go on your, your in work your farm. And it sounds like right. with this industry, um, it, it's, it's an everyday sort of you have to be that person sort of drumming up leads and things like that. Yeah, it's a completely self-starting business. Uh, you hear repeatedly from actors and from writers and from everyone that being represented by a agency does not really help because everyone said I always get my, I've always gotten my best jobs by myself and I hear that from musicians and from every member of this business that they get their own work and and suiting up is every morning is putting on your brain and telling it that it's got to be happy and go out there and it doesn't matter how bad things are uh, in reality, you have to put on a happy face. Uh, and I've gone to many meetings that I absolutely did not feel like going to because something had just happened that was a setback. And I just thought, I want to stay home, lick my wounds. But I go to the meeting and it always turns out that those meetings are the best meetings that you go to. And uh, when you walk out, you think, thank God I went. I mean, what would have happened if I hadn't gone? And that—that that is 
suiting up. That is definitely a kind of a nightly uh, encounter to put on your armor and go out there. And, and you're working with people who are doing the same thing. And that's part of the exhilaration of it is that you know that the person sitting across from you may have had worse things happen to him in the last 24 hours, but he's still there on the job and putting on a happy face and getting it done. Uh, it's, it's very deceptive and seductive uh, when people come here for the first time, especially clients of mine, I, I warn them uh, that they will be experiencing what's called the development dance, where everyone will be extremely nice to them and extremely positive, and then they'll never hear from them again. And that's because people are doing their job. And their, their job is to uh, m find out what this person has to offer the world. And if it's extremely exciting, which is rare, very rare, uh, then you'll hear from them. But most of the time it's not extremely exciting and, and exciting enough or, or, and or it doesn't fit the agenda of, the, of this person's company at the moment. They have something too much like it in development or they have a boss who does not want to do that particular kind of thing, etc. cetera. Uh, but their job is to be the best audience possible for any story that comes along that could be a dramatic story that people would you know, that would attract audiences. And so they'll, they'll be happy in the, in the meeting and then at the end of the meeting, you know, behind the back of the person who came to the meeting, they'll make a decision about whether to pursue it or not. And that's what you're up against. So you are like a door-to-door -door salesman. I always say there's a great blackboard in the sky that has every no you'll ever receive in your life written on it. And finally a yes at the end of the no's and the only catch is you can't see it. So what do you do? You, you go through the nose as fast as you can. That's the only way to deal with that blackboard. And uh, that's what successful people do in the business. They just keep getting those nose until somebody says yes. What key steps did you take to go from being a tenured professor? Most people would do many things that probably aren't good to be in those shoes to a movie producer, what, I'm sure first of all you had to deal with social pressure, people probably trying to talk you out of it, maybe not, but what steps did you take? Um, well, in retrospect you can always make it look more, you know, planned and logical than that it was at the time, but I basically, I ran into a very inspiring man whose name was Norman Cousins, who was the editor of Saturday Review World in those days, and uh, he came to speak in a class of mine at Occidental College and it turned out we shared uh, a motto that no one else in the world had ever heard of. And the motto was a, was a single sentence by the philosoph Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasset that said, I think the only immoral thing is for a being not to use every instant of its existence with the utmost intensity. And uh, I had never heard anyone else quote that, but after, our, after his talk in my class, I asked him to come to my office and showed him that it was framed above my desk. And so needless to say, we bonded and long story short, I asked him you know, what I should do when I grow up, which I asked male authority figures all my life, basically. And he, he told me after we got to know each other that I should consider the entertainment business because it was much broader than the academic world, 
and uh, people can basically do whatever, you know, anything creative you're encouraged to do, basically. And you can find your own way. Uh, there are no rules and schedules and all of those kinds of things that we find in academia. And I love academic, you know, the world and the, the ideas that are exchanged and all of that. But it was restricting and it was, you know, for me, suffocating, which is a word that um, is, means a lot to me personally. It's my mo most ancient nightmare is being suffocated. And I've never been suffocated in, you know, in the entertainment world, I've been terrified a lot, but not suffocated. And uh, so he encouraged me, and I thought, well, I don't know anything about the entertainment world other than movies that I've seen, that's it. And he showed me a passage from a book by William Goldman that I hope everyone knows called Adventures in the Screen Trade. And the passage was uh, that the only important rule in Hollywood is that nobody knows anything. And I thought, well, that's, that's good. It means it's a level playing field. So I set out to learn as much as I could. And I realized that I wasn't 18 years old in the mail room at William Morris. And I wasn't, you know, infinitely wealthy. And I didn't have relatives in the film business. Those are like the three main ways to get into the business normally. So I thought I, I just have to be smarter. So I started writing, uh, reading contracts. I remember a producer, uh, I'll never forget, I asked him if I could read a distribution contract, and he said, yeah, I can let you read it, but I can't let you take it out of my office. You can go out in the other room and have a cappuccino, and, but, you know, do that. So I read it, and I, I came back an hour later, and I said, uh, I'm confused about some things I read here. Can I ask you a couple of questions? And he said, sure. And he, I said, this paragraph number 48 in the fine print section at the end says that Accounting terms used in this agreement shall be redefined by the 20th Century Fox Accounting Department at such time, if any, that litigation is entered into among the parties. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, that is not in there. I go, yes, it is. Let me show you. I showed it to him. And he said, I can't believe that that's still in there. My, my attorney should have crossed that out. He had just signed the agreement. And I said, well, they didn't. So I, I started learning, that's how I started learning by reading contracts, because I think whatever kind of thing you're trying to do, uh, if it's successful, ends up with being a bunch of contracts. So you might as well start backwards with the contracts. And long story short, while I was preparing myself that way over a six month period, I, I came up with an idea that I sold basically on a wing and a prayer not knowing how to do it, but it ended up being within the next 12 months, 16 movies uh, that I was completely in charge of and raised half the money from Warner Brothers and half the money from, um, from a company in Canada, went up to Montreal and shot them all back to back, meaning one movie ended on Friday and the next one began on Monday. And uh, it was a series of romantic comedies and it came out of my teaching romantic literature and also teaching publishing because a, a publisher was talking in, one of, in my publishing class, a visiting publisher was talking to my class and he was telling me, he was telling us what goes on the cover of a romance novel. And I realized as he listed the things that were on the cover that he was basically reciting 
the rules of courtly love that I was teaching in another class that were written in the 12th century by Andreas Capellanus, the, the chaplain of, of Marie de France. And, uh, and I thought, so maybe romance novels that everyone makes fun of are just an extension of these ancient courtly stories, these love stories. And uh, I, I came up with the idea of doing a series of movies that imitated these love stories and were marketing uh, friendly because they all had colors so you could have put all the DVDs on the you know on the shelf and they would form a, a rainbow so they were all called things like the Rose Cafe Sunset Court Indigo Autumn etc and we did 16 of them and by that time I was I was fully in the in the business because I was in charge of production uh, as a creative production and uh, within three movies my assistant and I were you know we knew what we were doing whereas we did not have any idea what we were doing before the first movie started shooting and then I came back to Los Angeles and became a literary manager because I didn't have resources to option properties but as a literary manager you can produce properties by managing the property and that's what uh, got me going and uh, ever since then so it was that was how the transition occurred and it was just because I thought of an idea and I didn't know better if I known now what you know what if I'd known then what I know now I would never have sold it the way I sold it I, I simply went out with the concept and convinced several studios to look at it seriously and none of them had looked at a script or anything like that and one of them Warner Brothers wanted to see a script and I wouldn't show it to them uh, until they'd signed an agreement and they ended up signing an agreement in three days and then I showed them I, I manufactured the scripts over the weekend by putting out a call to the romance novel community and getting back you know ideas for the script and so on so it, it was a fluke and one of the hardest things about being in the business when you're been in it for a while is the there grows up this huge accumulation of experience that you have that makes you know that you shouldn't just pick up the phone and call the head of a studio and and I have to overcome that I just reached out to the head of a studio this morning but every time I do it it's like having a 500 pound weight in your hand to pick up the phone because you know that's wrong but somebody like me back then I didn't know it was wrong so I you know it was light it was a light motion to pick up the phone and call call somebody and uh, so whenever I get a new partner who's not involved I always say don't be afraid to tell me your craziest ideas because this is a world in which crazy ideas work and uh, you know it's it's the traditional ideas that have a harder time working so it, it is a completely wild and entrepreneurial frontier uh, it's probably the last frontier of American culture, the, the movie business, and uh, it's been changing ever since I've been in it. It constantly changes from a world in which video cassettes dominated and you could find them everywhere and to a world in which we're downstreaming from Netflix and Hulu and so on. And the, the delivery methods have always changed. And what doesn't change, and this is the encouraging thing for writers, is that the need for stories has only gotten greater and greater with the proliferation of hundreds of channels they all have one thing in common they need programming 
They need content. And uh, writers are the ones who create the content, the intellectual property. So they should be hugely encouraged. You don't have to understand all the distribution methods. You just need to know how to tell a story and, and you're in good shape. Just keep telling stories. How did you learn to tell a great story? You know, I learned how to tell stories on the porch in Louisiana when I was growing up because I had, uh, I was grown up in the country and born on a farm and my uncles were all, uh, you know, farmers and storytellers. And uh, we sat on the front porch and told stories. And every conversation started as a conversation but quickly went into a story. E even a trip to town was a story. Everything was a story. And I noticed, of course, quickly that some people could tell them and some people couldn't. I mean, a lot of stories down there were jokes. Uh, and, you know, one uncle I had, the minute he started talking, everybody seemed to leave the porch because he was the dullest storyteller I have ever run into in my life. You know, I loved him dearly, loved to go fishing with him, but don't let him get tell, telling the story uh, because it takes him forever to tell it. And at the end, you can't even remember how it began. But the other uncle was mesmerizing and you loved listening to his stories. And when he started telling stories, people started showing up on the porch. And I think that's really where I learned, where I realized that this was a basic form of human communication that uh, I wasn't getting in Kansas City, which was much more businesslike and conversation was for the sake of getting to the next point in the day. And down there, it was a, it was a focus in itself you know, everyone looked forward to getting up at 4.30 and sitting on the porch for an hour telling stories before the day began and, and, and then reassembling at 7 and telling stories until everyone conked out at the end of the day. So that's definitely where I got the start uh, in loving the power of stories. I mean, I, I think that uh, those stories changed everyone's lives and you never forget a story. I mean, you can... You can forget your, your mathematical equation and you can forget you know, your chemistry, but you just don't forget a good story. And, and that's made me fall in love with it from the very beginning. And I, you know, I've been very lucky because I spent my whole life dealing with stories. That's all I deal with every day. What three things does a great story have to have? What, th three things? Hmm. Uh, well, it has to be, it has to have a hook that gets people instantly involved in the story. And, and that is a huge part of the story itself. And it's, it's got to have a very strong character in the story that you care about. And other than that, it has to have twists and turns that lead to a surprise ending. And I, if I had to just say three things, I guess that's what I would say the three things are. Every, every story needs that because a, a story about nothing is not going to hold anyone's interest. And, and sometimes writers, when they begin their careers, think that they just, if they just write, they can write about anything. But the truth is they need to write from their heart about ma things that matter to everyone. Uh, and if they do that, you can hardly go wrong. Because stories are really not about words or word choice or anything like that. They're about conveying the power of, of a character facing a dilemma that you have no idea how he or she will will resolve. 
And uh, when you do that, you've got everyone's attention. And when, in, in ancient times, they, there was a thing called the oral tradition, which I used to teach as a professor of Homeric Greek. Uh, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey were sung, you know, at campfires, and everyone in the culture knew the stories. Uh, it's, we're publishing a book right now on Homeric song and how it worked and how it held culture together. And my first book was about those, I call those stories the shield of memory. That it was because of those stories that a person knew how to deal with himself in battle or when facing a, an attacking boar or when facing an angry wife, you know, or when facing a pillagers trying to burn down his village. They, he would instantly think of the story of Heracles who did this and that, or the story of, you know, Aegean who did this and that. And that's all they had. They didn't have books, you know, for learning. It was all passed along through the oral tradition. And I think stories have never failed to play that role in human life. When you think about it, you know, what's your story is probably the most human response to any encounter. And it goes from a court of law where the jury is trying to decide which of the two stories do they believe to a political campaign where the voters are making that decision to a first date where you're going, do I believe his story? I just don't believe it. I can't buy his story. That's, that's the, the ultimate human turndown. You can't buy the story. And it, it goes through everything. Advertising is conveying stories that people will, you know, so that people will want to buy the product. Uh, this is how humans operate on a daily basis. So to me, it's absolutely amazing that an industry has been created where people will pay millions of dollars for stories uh, and where stories can basically conquer the world and I believe unite the world. I mean, look at all the work we're now doing with China in the movie business. Uh, I just saw uh, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, the new version of it, where the male lead is Chinese and she is Western. And clearly as a producer, I'm watching it going, this was a Chinese financed movie because I understand how it works for the market. You know, the Chinese hero makes it perfect for the Chinese market and he looks pretty good, but she's the real, the real protagonist in the story and she's great for the Western market. And she's a woman, so it's all very contemporary and et cetera. So you see the structure behind it is actually a cultural change because now the values of the West are being inserted in the Chinese market with the Chinese co-op cooperating with them. Uh, and, and as I believe, China is becoming more capitalistic all the time, uh, partly through the influence of movies. The audience wants to see individual people doing what they want to do in life and going out there and kicking ass and not being under the thumb of some, you know, emperor or despot. So I think that this is why the whole storytelling thing is so exciting because it really is a universal experience. The question is what stands in most people's way of achieving their dreams? So it sounds oh. simple, we can achieve dreams and yeah. there's a million books on it, but what do you think is actually the block for many people? Um, I, you know, I have written a book called Quit Your Day Job and Lead the Life of Your Dreams based on my own experience and that of others. Uh, one of my favorite stories, I was on Joyce Brothers television show years ago 
with a couple of other people and one of them was a man in his, he was then in his 80s and just had received his law degree from the University of Chicago. And uh, he, he told, he told uh, her that he was standing in line for registration four years earlier and one of the young people in line behind him said, sir, um, are you sure you're in the right line? And he said, and I turned around and I said, what line should I be in? And I thought, that is America. That's the essence of America. You, you are in whatever line you want to be in in this country. And uh, he fearlessly walked up and stood in the line and got a, his law degree at the age of 86 or whatever he was. And to me, it, it, what stands in people's way is fear. And, and their, their friends inflicted on them. So one of the chapters in my book has to do with distinguishing between friends and friendly associates. Because when I left the academic world, uh, I had a few friends and I had lots of friendly associates. I learned the difference when I decided to leave because I retained a few friends, but most everybody I did not retain as friends because they thought I was absolutely crazy. They either thought that uh, in a kind of benign way or they just thought I was, I mean, they, or they just were extremely angry that I was leaving a tenured position. They, they thought that was completely ungrateful and crazy. And I could also see that they were fearful about it. And, and I knew well, I knew them well enough to know that many of them were envious, wished they could do it, but just wouldn't do it because they're set in their ways. And one of, that's one of the reasons I didn't like tenure because it, once you had tenure, you didn't have to publish anymore. You didn't have to do anything anymore. Uh, and of course, if you're truly motivated, that's not going to stop you. And there were a few people who were unstoppable, but mostly they weren't unstoppable and they just stopped. And to me, that was a crime because I didn't understand anything other than the merit system as you know, something that should rule an academy of ideas, you know? So I, I think what makes people afraid is the fear of being out on the street. You know, it's an image that, that I've had, you know, in the first 10 years of getting into a new world where I realized I wasn't gonna get a check every two weeks regularly. You know, you, you have that image if you were raised by depression era parents. And, and you also have the other image of the wolves at the door. Uh, I remember that one because I, I, I found a quick way around it. Go to the door, open the door, and if you don't see any wolves at the door, then there are no wolves at the door. Uh, but it is, it is an image that pops into your mind in the middle of the night, as, as does the homeless image and many other things. But if you're afraid of images, then you shouldn't be in the world of images. I mean, that's what I do is I create images and develop images and turn them into movies. So how can I let, you know, images that are in my brain control my actions? Uh, you have to learn to overcome that. And uh, so I, I think people have to clearly understand themselves and, and decide on who to listen to. You know, if you truly are a friend and you love somebody, you encourage them to fulfill their dreams. And I always did that to my students. I always felt like you have a dream and you're afraid of accomplishing it. What if your dream is the most important dream that ever came along in the human race and you don't do anything about it? It was your dream and you do nothing about it. To me, that's a sacrilege. You know, you, you had the dream for a reason. You know, it, it's in your mind for a reason. Either God put it there or it, it was 
born in your mind from some other source, why aren't you going to do something about it? Well, because I'm afraid that my father and mother would be really upset. And I go, so this is a hypothetical fear about something that hasn't happened yet, right? Yes. Then why not just do it and deal with the possibility that may never happen at all? And uh, that's, it, it's a matter of knowing yourself. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about first in the book. I was raised on Greek philosophy and what it said over the Oracle of Delphi was know thyself. That that's, was the most important piece of knowledge that Plato and Aristotle and Socrates taught. And uh, knowing yourself means you know you're going to be haunted by this dream if you don't do it. I mean, I've had a partner who said once when her movie was in trouble, uh, maybe this is one of those dreams that should never have happened. And I go, that is complete blasphemy. You know, you say that now, but later you will see that that was uh, that there was some other voice talking to you other than your own voice, because you you made this thing happen, and you know you will be proud of that, as she was, and that's, I think. The f simply fear is the number one impediment to people going for their dreams. And it's fear, you know, everyone knows the acronyms about fear. It's fear is about things that haven't happened yet, that may never happen, uh, just like worry. And uh, we all do it. We all have fears. We all have worries. But overcoming your fears is what, you know, valiant people do. It's what, you know, people that you would like to be like do. So why not do it yourself uh, and, and not have to live with the regret, which is the big monster equal to fear that you live with if you are sitting on that proverbial front porch in your rocking chair thinking about the dreams that you had and didn't do. I mean, to me, that's a terrible waste of life to have that happen. Also, stripping away illusions, and you talk about knowing thyself and being comfortable enough to know that if you have to stand by yourself for a while because you've lost the illusion of some of the friendships or peer group that you thought was going to be there with you, if for whatever reason socially they've gone the other way, knowing that that's okay as well. Yeah, I mean, th that's a very good point because I think as you get older you realize that uh, you cannot govern your life by what other people think. And it's, you know, I live on the 11th floor and I look out over the millions of lights in Los Angeles. And it's a great comfort to think that there are, you know, a few lights out there that love me. You know, there are maybe fewer that hate me. and But there are millions that have no idea that I exist. That's comfortable. And it's sort of the cosmic view of life when you think about it. You're, you're just one little tiny piece of a massive co cosmos that is going about its massive m mechanism with on its own without any need for you to consult with it. And uh, for you to be worried about what you know, some other person somewhere else thinks about you is a complete waste of your energy in every way. Your job is to do what your dreams tell you to do and uh, to do it with all your might, the way the cosmos does. And what other people are saying and thinking and doing, first of all, because most of them are not spending any time thinking about you at all, could care less what you do or don't do. Most of them are thinking only about themselves. So that's a natural condition. And why should you be any different? You know, if you have a dream, just do it. And if you're the, the crazy painter that 
has been turning out paintings in the garage down the street and everyone thinks you're a crackpot, but then they learn that you sold one of your paintings for a million dollars and now it's gonna be in the Louvre. You know, suddenly they go, I always knew that that gal was a genius. You know, she, she really had talent from the very beginning. People change instantly, which shows how much value their opinion really has, right? And uh, that's why I just think it's, you, you've got to really listen to yourself and, and not listen to everybody else. And the few people, you can tell your friends because the ones that support you in doing that are your true friends. <clears throat> and if the person who's not supporting you is, I've had several clients in my career who whose spouses did not support them. And, uh, you know, my advice is divorce your spouse. I'm sorry. You know, like, I take this seriously. I take, <coughs> this is a profession. This is a vocation. And if, you know, someone close to you is telling you don't do it, it's selfish, um, you need to get somebody else close to you, you know, who will encourage you. Because all the, all the monumental great things in life, I think, are done by people who go for it and who are not afraid of taking a chance and who are therefore supported by a few true friends, you know, or loved ones who tell them to do it. You know, it's uh, many examples from my own life, but uh, when I decided to leave the tenured position, my daughter was a junior at Columbia. And one thing that would be jeopardized would be her senior year at Columbia. And I brought her up to Montreal where I was shooting movies and we had a long talk about it, you know, offset. And uh, she said, Dad, you absolutely have to do this. You have to do it. Don't worry about that. And of course, that problem got solved and didn't end up being a problem, but I was a concern. But she had no concern for it. And um, that's how I know, you know who my true friends are. And that's how you would know, too, if you decide you want to do something. Listen carefully to what the people around you say. Because when people are telling you no, they're expressing their own fears. And some of it may be good-hearted. They're, they're afraid that the things they fear may happen to you. But if you're willing to take the risk, you know, don't let them influence you because they're not taking the risk, you know, un unless they depend on you. And then you have to figure that out. And I, and I did certain things when I left that career to make sure that those who depended on me would not, you know, end up being left without resources. So I did what I had to do to make sure that happened. And then once I did that, I, my, my conscience was clear and I was able to embrace it fully with all the risks that it entailed. And, and I, you know, no regrets, even though there were some very dark times, uh, and, and they're always ups and downs in, in, in a business like this one and in a career that is uh, bereft of security. You know, the, the other side of that coin is that as much as security is an illusion, rejection is also an illusion because you, you can take as many chances as you want. You know, I constantly hear people tell me, even on the phone this morning, you only get one shot. That was a distributor telling me, we only get one shot. And I thought, well, okay, maybe that's true for you, but I get as many shots as I want to take. And Hollywood is, you know, first of all, doesn't exist. What is Hollywood, right? It's just a concept. But in reality, the business that I'm in, all you have to do is tell somebody I've got a great new story, and they are all ears immediately. They don't care that it's been 10 years since you talked to them. You know, you, you spend 
a few seconds in chit chat and then they want to hear the story. So you can take as many, you know, as many chances as you want to take unless your own psychology disallows that because it wants you to get depressed and, you know, spend, go into a coma of, of unhappiness and uh, take rejection seriously, etc. I just don't have time. You know, one of my essays is called The Waiting Room and it's about what you do while you're waiting for an answer on a creative project. Well, you don't wait, you do something else. You know, you, you make another creative project, you get it going. And by the, you know, if you keep doing that, every project has its own clock. You can't do much to control that clock, but you can be doing another project. And sooner or later, you have projects all around you that are in various states of, of, of ripeness, and they will happen in their own time. And your biggest problem will be, what if two of them happen at the same time? And I always say, don't worry about that. I mean, that's the kind of problem you want to have. You, you don't want to have the problem of nothing happening. So no, you don't wait at all. And I think a lot of writers torture themselves because they wait. You know, they, they send off a manuscript hypothetically into the snail mail. No one does that anymore, but they send it off and then they wait for an answer. Why would they wait for an answer? That's a complete waste of time. Instead, you instantly work on something else. And that way, when something comes from the first thing, you're, you're surprised and you're you deal with it immediately without wasting any kind of psychological energy on it. You just, if it's a rejection, you take take it, and you move on. And if it's a, if it's somebody offering you a deal, then you consider the deal. But you don't. Writers feel like they have to spend an additional ninety percent of their time fretting over it all, analyzing it, you know, soul searching over it. And you do that when you're younger and it's fine to do some of it because you may get a lot of creativity out of it. But once you've gone through it and tortured yourself, you know, to your own satisfaction, you don't have to do that all the time. You can just go back to work. And Ray Bradbury used to say that to writers, get back to work, it'll get rid of all these moods you're having. You know, and I always thought that's the most brilliant advice. Work is the solution. What do you wish someone had sat you down and said to you in the beginning of embarking on the entertainment side of your career? Uh, <laughs> don't waste your time. I, I wish somebody had told me, don't waste your time, because I've wasted some time in my life, believe it or not, despite you know what I've said about not wasting time and not waiting. and. Um, I think that's maybe the only advice that I would have liked to hear. Uh, but, you know, they also try to put you in a niche. Like I was constantly told, find your niche, find your niche. And uh, I, I founded a magazine once called DreamWorks, and it was about the, the relationship between dreams and the arts. And it was an interdisciplinary journal with Ursula Le Guin and Joyce Carol Oates and John Foles and Carlos Fuentes on the advisory board and many others. I mean, 20 people of equal stature. And it covered all the arts. And I was told by one publisher, it was too general, you need to find a niche. And, but another publisher accepted it and published it for 10 years. And uh, so <laughs> listening to the advice of, Telling someone telling you to find a niche uh, 
so r the reason I'm fumbling about the answer to your question is I really never had that that issue in my life of what it, what I wish someone had told me. I kept finding people that I respected who told me the exact right thing that I needed to hear. And, and one person around this whole issue said, what's remarkable about you is your diversity. Never give up your diversity, no matter what. And that piece of advice was the most uh, wholesome piece of advice I could have received. And it was from a person I respected tremendously. So I never really had that question of what would I have liked to hear, because I did hear it. And it meant that I wasn't afraid to go into feature films with, with the major studios, into independent films, or into television. And I, you know, produced movies and, and projects and all those places and categories, because I never let anyone stop me from being diverse. And I thought that was, that I needed that piece of advice when I, and I got it. Diversity is something that I've always been in love with because I was, when I was in college, I was an English and classics kind of double major because I couldn't decide, you know, which one to go for. And uh, when I heard about comparative literature uh, my last year at Georgetown, I thought, this is perfect. It's a study of different cultures, and it's about putting things together. You know, so I've written crazy pieces like comparing Wallace Stevens to Petrarch and, uh, you know, Dante with Joyce and so on. And that's what I just think is the most interesting thing is when you juxtapose two things or three things rather than focusing on one thing. And that's one of the things the academic world uh, annoyed me about sometimes uh, until I discovered comparative literature and took that degree at Yale and, and then ended up teaching that. And, and I think that the rest of my life has been an extension of do, working in more than one discipline. I mean, in addition to movies, I'm very uh, involved in books. I've just finished another book of my own and I've uh, I published books because four years ago I realized that I was having a hard time after publish after selling books to New York for 20 years or more and having nearly 20 New York Times bestsellers, uh, I realized that because of all the uh, conglomeration that was going on among the publishers pur purchased by large corporations around the world, there was no longer uh, much chance for a young new voice to be published. What they're looking for is established brands. And, you know, the old joke that Stephen King could publish, you know, the phone book with his name on it. And that's, that's just the way it is in this, you know, huge country where marketing and branding is what it's all about to get the attention of this 300 million audience. So I came up with the idea. And what was happening to me is because I didn't, couldn't publish things as easily as I could before, I published 250 books. I mean, sold them to publishers. And I could take those books to Hollywood and sell them to Hollywood. So I no longer had books to take to Hollywood. So I decided to start my own imprint, Story Merchant Books, which I did. And that was, you know, five years ago, and we've published over 200 books now. And I now take them to Hollywood and set, set them up as series or set them up as movies. And uh, no one seems to mind that they're not Random House books. 
they don't even look at the publisher, basically. They listen to me pitch the story at lunch, and then they take the book home and read it. And uh, so I've always been involved in, you know, it's sort of like comparative situation because I've got New York publishing and Hollywood, and I've used them back and forth against each other. One time, because Hollywood has this huge respect for books, and New York has this awe of movies, primarily because of the marketing money associated with movies that they can then write along with when they republish the book. So I'm hoping to have a big auction coming up soon on a movie that's appearing this summer after 22 years uh, called The Meg from Warner Brothers. And it, it, we sold it 22 years ago. That's how long it's been. We developed it through one of my companies and then sold it to a publisher and then we sold it to a studio. And it's been 22 years in development hell until finally it's, it's getting made. And, and one of the good things about stories is that they're timeless. One of my favorite examples, of, which was no solace to its author, Mel, Herman Melville, is that Moby Dick sold about 60 copies prior to Melville's death. And within two decades after his death, it became not only an international bestseller, but the great American novel. Uh, so the stories are timeless, and that's what writers are, are capable of doing, of creating something timeless, which is of immense value, obviously, to the human race. The Iliad and the Odyssey were composed thousands of years ago, and yet they're still on every bookstore's shelves. You can find them all over the internet. And uh, so the power of stories, I've always loved the fact that they were, a story grows up to be, can be a book, or it can, same story can grow up and be a movie. We once had a screenplay uh, that I loved that won the Nichols Award, one of the highest you know, uh, awards in the business. And it, uh, it was placed almost at the top, not quite at the top. But I, I read it, loved it, tried to sell it to the studios. They all thought it was too original. They didn't know who the author was, and they, they ended up passing. So I told the author, let's turn this story into a book. And so, long story short, we did, and I sold it to a major publisher, and within a couple of weeks of selling to a major publisher, we had an auction in Hollywood and sold it to a major studio, uh, and it went into development. And we've done it kind of the opposite way, as somebody was starting to write a project in one form, and I told him to write it in the other because of the random conversation I had with, a, with an editor, and she thought it was, sounded like the best novel she'd ever heard, and, he wasn't a novelist, but long story short, within three months he wrote a novel and we sold it and then sold it for $1.2 million to you know a major studio in Hollywood. So I thought, you know, that's my comparative literature background that the idea of having two different worlds to put together and recognize how they're related to each other. Um, I, I learned that there are wormholes between New York and LA uh, because when I was just beginning to shop the, the novel, in the second case, to New York, I sent it to only one publisher, which is the person that told me it, was, it sounded like a great idea. She didn't know I only sent it to her, but I sent it to her alone. And three days later, I got a call from George Clooney's partner asking if he could option it. And I, I said, how did you hear about that? And he said, I can't tell you. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, if you can't tell me, um, 
do you want to read it? I mean, what, what do you want to do? And he goes, no, no, we've read it already and we want to, we want to make an offer on it. So that began an auction for that property too. But I learned that there was a wormhole going on because I called the editor and fished around talking to her and she denied that anyone had ever read it outside of her office, which is, couldn't have been true because clearly someone had read it. It got snuck out through the wormhole. So I thought I, I could only have done this if I had the whole mentality that I will not find my niche and only be working in films. I will not only work in books. I want to work in both. I love them both. And they're just two different forms of storytelling. And why can't any story that's dramatic end up in both camps? And that's kind of what I've done throughout my career is tried to get a story for both camps. It's funny too, because I would think that the entrance into the literary world, the New York literary world, is much more based on, you know, pedigree and different, you know, whereas Hollywood, you've got a great script, anything goes, you're in the front door if they like it. So it sounds like that's not always the case. That sounds like that's my perception of it. It's not Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, you know, without <coughs> offending you, it's an old-fashioned perception. <laughs> it's okay. It's kind of an all-American, old 50s, 1950s <laughs> Before I was person. born, yeah. <laughs> because you can have a great script and, and get nowhere in Hollywood. Uh, it's getting it to the right person that, that matters. And uh, even with a great script, as that one was where I talked the guy into writing the book uh, and then sold it to, you know, in an auction too, he, he had a great script and, and, and he was able to get it to people, but they didn't buy it because they were afraid. Because what's happened in the last 20 years is that Hollywood and New York have become corporatized They've all been acquired by international conglomerates. You know, there isn't a single studio that isn't owned by some foreign, you know, accumulation, with the exception of Disney, which of course is itself international conglomerate, right? But Sony owns Columbia and, you know, Paramount is owned by CBS, Viacom, you know. So because of that, the executives have totally changed from a world in which and the same is true in publishing, from a world in which people with guts and vision made decisions about doing a story, publishing it or greenlighting a movie. Now it's, it's, it's corporate people wearing suits who are very worried for their jobs, you know, whose, I always say their main focus is on their, you know, their, their gold cards and their, their Mercedes. Um, and they don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. Whereas the heads of studios in the old days would just take chances. This is a great story. I, I love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this story, and uh, but now they can't. They have to show marketing reports, and, and this is true in New York just as well because Hachette has bought, you know, the Warner Books and CVS owns Simon and Schuster and Touchstone and all of those things. Uh, every one of the big companies, Holt Springs owns Macmillan and. Thomas Dunn books and Tor books and St. Martin's Press and, you know, Penguin Random House, Doubleday, they're all part of one huge foreign conglomerate, uh, Bertelsmann and so on. So because of that, everyone has to think like corporate employees. They have to provide marketing P&Ls, you know, to the uh, editorial department and the, and the marketing department. And the marketing department has the last say, not the editorial department. You know, if they go, how do you know we're going to sell 100,000 copies of this book? 
well, I just have a gut feeling. Well, sorry, your track record doesn't justify your having a gut feeling. So they'll let a really talented, brilliant editor make a couple of decisions like that a year. But if she doesn't prove it out by those books becoming bestsellers, you know, she gets less leash every year. And the same is true in Hollywood. And the studios have gotten even worse because they, they're focused now entirely on brands. And in the last six years or so, they are now doing a fraction of the number of movies they used to do uh, because they'd rather spend $200 million on a brand or th then take a $50 million chance on a great story that has no track record. Uh, that's why Twilight got kicked out of Paramount because it was sitting there, you know, in development hell for several years and Paramount didn't get it and they didn't understand why it was going to be great. Summit came along and, and bought it from Paramount and uh, cashed out on it. And Paramount goes, oh, okay, well, they didn't have any regrets because there's no they there. You know, no one sits around wringing hands. Uh, they're all doing understandable logic and no one lost their job over it. That's the important part. Whereas if you green light a movie and it goes down the tubes, you could lose your job. You know, then you're you're out shopping for a new Mercedes, you know. You're leasing one, yeah. You're, yeah, at, at another place. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of what's happened to the world. But in the meantime, this, the need for stories continues and uh, storytellers are still hugely in demand. You just have to find a new path each time. That's, that's why I started, you know, the imprint so I could get around that issue. And now I just take New York, to New York big brands like something with the word Kennedy on it or the word Dracula, I can sell those still. But I don't, I just, I know I can't sell smaller books. I'll try sometimes because I love the book so much, but invariably it comes down to better publish this ourselves. One of your many books, Ken, is Right Time, right? Mm -hmm. And so you say that the world can be divided into two people productive people and non-productive people. And that you say productive people have a love affair with time. So I would love to know what makes someone uh, on the right side of time, whereas what makes someone sort of time is their enemy. Um, well, yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> and put in a very intelligent way that makes it hard to figure out the handle on it because time is, uh, time is this, it doesn't really exist. I mean, time, is a human construct. We we created time. Uh, squirrels and you know chipmunks don't have much idea of time. And they know the sun rises and the sun goes down, and they know that it rains, but they don't think the way we do. Where you know, they don't keep track of their birthdays, for example. Like only humans do that, and it's unfortunate because you know you're only as old as you think you are. That's the way a squirrel looks at it, and nobody's arguing with the squirrel about it you know but but humans know better and people some people look at time as the enemy and some people look at it as a friend there, there's an old spanish saying that says there's more time than life which i always thought was a wonderful way of looking at it because it's that's what a productive person would say there is more time than life and uh another spanish or italian saying says that l life is Law is is short, but wide. 
And, and that's another way that productive look at it. Like people say, how could you do as much stuff as you do? Well, because that's what I do. I don't do anything else. And I used to give classes on time management and do a lot of studies on it. In fact, right time is filled with time management theories. And one of the things I noticed about people is they had no idea where their time went. And, and they go, I don't know where you get find all the time. And I would say, like, I don't know where you lose it. I mean, we all have the same amount of time. And I go, how much time do we have, by the way? How many hours are in a week? And like two out of 10 people can answer that question right off the top of their heads because they've never really multiplied 24 times seven and realized exactly how many hours there are in a week. And so everyone has the same amount of time. So what I would do in a time management class at UCLA or elsewhere is I would say, let's keep chart your time this, this week. I just want you to make a chart of what you do with your time. And let's come in and uh, talk about it next week when we come back together and they would come back in. And, uh, and that was before I asked them how many hours were in a week. I would wait for the third week to ask that question. And, and they would, some people would come in with 98 hour weeks and some people would come in with 62 hour weeks. Nobody seemed to agree in general how many hours there were in a week because the hours they gave me didn't add up. They didn't make sense. You know, they'd say, I sleep like six hours a week, but it turned out in the third week of analysis that they're actually, I mean, six hours a day, it would turn out that actually they were sleeping 10 hours a day. They just were telling themselves they slept six hours a day. How much time do you spend talking on the telephone? So most people thought they spent maybe 15 minutes a day when in fact they might, they might be an hour a day that they're spending on that. And watching television, of course. Some people were saying that they only spent maybe an hour a day when they were really spending three hours a day. And, but, but a productive person knows exactly how long it takes to do something. Like when I write a screenplay or a book, I, I can tell you how many hours it takes to, to do it. And so I know that I can get it done in a certain amount of time. I mean, Agatha Christie apparently wrote as many as 10 books a year. She had to use four or five pen names because she just kept writing. When you think about it, writing is a function of how fast do you type. You know, because if you have your, I always say in my writing book, including that one, I always say, if you don't, if you make it a rule not to sit down to write before you know what you're going to write, then you'll never waste any time and you'll never have writer's block. So simply don't sit down until you know what you're going to write. Then it's just a matter of how fast can you type. So it's better to be walking along the, the beach thinking about the structure of your story than it is to be wasting a lot of time sitting in front of a computer typing stuff and throwing it away and all that stuff. Just figure it all out in your head. And well, what if I forget it? Well, guess what? If you forget it, that's probably good. You're forgetting forgettable things. You won't forget it when it starts getting really good because then it'll do what Faulkner said, it'll start honk, haunting you and you won't be able to forget it. And then you'll just write it down. William Saborian was asked once how long it took him to write the human comedy because somebody had told the journalist that it took him three days above drugstore. And he said, no, I, it took me all my life to write it. I, it just took me three days to type it out. And, and that's, so if you're productive, you've already figured out that there are certain things that are completely unproductive, such as sitting in front of a blank screen trying to figure out what to put down next. And 
other ways to do things that make you productive. And productive people don't waste their time. As I said, when it comes to waiting, you don't wait, you just do something else. You, what I call it, rotate from one thing to another so that you still have, you have new energy constantly all day because you're switching activities. And when you switch to a new activity, you have new energy just because of that, but you're also pulling energy from the previous activity that's kind of pulling you back and wanting you to do more on it. But that's good, instead of listening to it and going back and doing more on the previous activity, it's better to have that kind of little anxiety going on there because then the next time that activity gets a chance at your time, it'll be ready and it'll be more productive during that time compartment. So I, I think that's the whole difference is between productive and unproductive people have never figured out how to use time. They don't even know how to measure time. And, and they, confuse, they confuse things. I mean, there are two functions in life or two entities that we deal with. One is time and the other is work. And one of them is, in, is eternal and, and timeless and endless. And the other one is not. And, but people get it wrong. The one that's timeless and endless and eternal is work, not time, unless you're God, you know. But if you're not God, then guess what? You have a limited amount of time. And the only problem is you don't know what the limit is, but that doesn't matter because you just have to operate anyway. But what's infinite is work because good work produces more work. And so does bad work, right? So no matter what kind of work you're doing, it keeps going and you cannot manage it, therefore, because it's a, it's a given that you can't manage an infinite thing. But you can manage something that is finite, and that's time. So managing time is what we have to do. And, and let's say if you're writing a book, and you know that you type seven pages an hour at least, then you give yourself one hour every day to write your book. Well, at the end of 100 days, you've got you know, how many pages? 700 pages, right? So it's, it's not complicated to figure it out, but you have to manage the right thing. You're managing your time because the work will happen only if you give it time to, to attend to it. And what happens is that people procrastinate because they, they think they're trying to manage the work and they, they don't know that you can't manage the work. Like, I'm going to get this book done if it takes me all summer, and then nothing happens, they don't do it. That, that isn't what you should do. You need to say, I'm gonna work from seven to eight every morning, you know, without fail for X five days a week, it's better than seven days a week because your brain revolts when you make it stop something that it's actually enjoying. So if you make it stop after the fifth day, it's very upset and it spends the whole weekend thinking about the project and it's really raring to go on Monday when you start again. Whereas if you keep it going, it'll get worn out and it'll get bored eventually because that's what brains do. So it, it, that's so productive. Th there's two kinds of productive people too. You know, the unproductive ones. Let's not talk about. It. I mean, they have their own thing going, and I hope they're enjoying life. But productive people are divided into two kinds, and those are the happy ones and the unhappy ones. The unhappy ones are the ones who've never figured out the psychology of creativity. And so they're constantly surprised by it and upset by it. 
And that's why you have Virginia Woolf and Hemingway and, and you know, Sylvia Plath offing themselves at the end because they, they, they've never figured it out. They've never figured out that at the end of a project, they're going to get depressed and they're going to go into this postpartum depression that they may never come out of. But if, if you're on the other side of the thing, the happy, productive person, you figured that out already. So what do you do? Before you end a project, you start another project. And then you can't wait to get into the new project, so you don't mind finishing the first project. So you've eliminated postpartum depression. And that's simply because you figured out how your creative mind works, which is what writer's time is all about. And that's what I mean by, you know, productive, happy productive versus unhappy productive people. You don't have to be miserable and suicidal to be a writer. You can be perfectly happy by knowing your system and not letting it do it to you. This might be an old wives' tale as well or an older version of this. The unhappy writers having more depth in which to write about, more, more in which to pull from, whereas the happy writers are just scratching the surface and it might be too much a movie of the week instead of um, something that pulls at your sort of emotional core and, and you put yourselves in the, the character's shoes. I don't know. Again, is that, does that, can we dispel that then? That you have to be unhappy in that sense? Yeah, you know, th this is a famous dilemma that people have been talking about for my whole lifetime. There was a, a book that came out years and years ago called The Drama of the, uh, gifted, of the child. gifted Child. Alice Miller. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and thank you for reminding <laughs> me of the author. But, but you know, it's a very, very interesting book, and it basically says that uh, writers should fear therapy because it might therapize, you know, take away their, their angst from which came all of their, you know, their, their, their brilliant ideas. And, and it's just, they're simply not true uh, because there's just too many examples of productive writers who have plenty of angst. And one of my favorite examples is Stephen King who published in my magazine, DreamWorks. Uh, we sent out a letter to artists all over the world, including him, and said, could you please tell us uh, whether dreams have any influence, you know, on your creativity, and if so, give us an example of a dream, and and a, and a creative work that came from us, came from it. So Fellini sent us a cartoon that he dreamed in the middle of the night that led to Eight and a Half, his movie Eight and a Half, and we got great stuff from all kinds of people, and Stephen King finally. Uh, six months later, after everyone else, sent us a very short letter and he said, this is my constant nightmare. I'm sitting alone in an attic, typing away, and a little door on the floor of the attic opens and a hideous face comes out of the door and I start typing as fast as I can because the faster I type, the more the door closes and if I slow down, you know, the face keeps coming out. And then he says, does that count? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a, an example of what you're talking about because he has plenty of angst going on. He has plenty of terror and fear and dark things in his, some of his most brilliant works like The Shawshank Redemption and, you know, uh, The Shining. A and he's not an unhappy writer. Like, he's... He knows that he needs to put the time in every day. He, he's figured it out, and he's prolific, and so on. So there are just too many examples of 
balanced writers, let's call them mentally balanced writers. One of my favorite statements from the world of art is Salvador Dali said one time, the difference between myself and a madman is that I am not mad. And I love that because only an artist who knows how close sanity is to insanity knows what that means. You know, like he's, he's one of those madmen who isn't mad, whereas a lot of other madmen are mad. And, you know, okay, they kill themselves or they kill somebody else or whatever. Um, so it's, it's all about knowing yourself. I mean, it's all about figuring out how your mind works and proving it and testing it until, you know, before you know it, you look back and you go, my God, I've written, you know, all these books, I have all these things going on. And I don't think I'm crazy. And on the other hand, I don't think I'm sane either. You know, it's, it's like you just figured it out. And so you, it doesn't mean you're not having dark spells. It's just that you, you kind of look at your dark spells from the outside instead of from the inside. You know, they, it's very common in meditation and yoga to understand that you can either be inside yourself all the time and drive yourself crazy by letting your mind run it, you know, what's going on. Or you can like stay above your mind and look down on all these thoughts going by and all this stuff and recognize that you, the one looking, is in charge, not all the thoughts. And, and the writer's time has a whole theory about how the creative mind works that way, where there's what I call the managing editor looking at the, the fight going on inside your mind and realizing that this can be controlled if, if you trick the two sides of the mind and force them to work together. Um, that's kind of what it's all about, to become productive and happy at the same time. And it you know, seems to work for a lot of people. Can any book be made into a movie? <laughs> any book? Any book. No, I don't think so. Like an instruction manual? That's been done though. Uh, people have made instruction manuals into movies, but no, not any book. But um, the, the, what makes the movie is is absolute drama. You have to have drama, uh, and I'm not talking about a bad movie. I'm talking about a good movie, a movie that people will not, you know, fast forward through or switch channels on or. Any, so to make a a worthy movie, a, a book has to have drama, and that means it has to have a very clear three acts, beginning, middle, and end. And what defines the beginning is, is something that hooks the audience into the story so that it will not abandon the story. And an ending is something that makes you leave the theater or turn off your television very satisfied with the way the story ended. Uh, whether it's happy or sad isn't the point, but it's satisfying like the end of Witness, where we realize that the lovers cannot stay together, even though we want them to, because it just wouldn't make any sense. And the way the last shot is Peter Weir taking a long time to let the car drive down the, the lane away from the farm onto the road, it's such a long shot that it gives you a chance to go through your head and think, oh, come on, slow down, turn around, make a U-turn, or run after him, and none of that happens because your mind is now going, you know what, that wouldn't make any sense. This is sad, but it's got to end, but it still was beautiful. And 
that's good drama and good movie making. And the middle has got to be something, it's the hardest part for any writer, it's, it's got to be something that keeps you there, meaning filled with twists and turns and reversals and unexpected events and so on, so that you don't want to tune out. Uh, and that's what, if a book can do that, then it can be a movie. And if a book isn't doing that, but has potential, because it has a strong protagonist and a strong antagonist, that's where a treatment comes in. Uh, you write a treatment and, and fix all the problems with the book in the treatment and pitch the treatment. I've sold a number of movies based on a treatment because the book had problems and uh, I almost wouldn't let the buyers read the book because once they said they want to do it, I go, okay, let's just go with the treatment, please. <laughs> but at the end, if you know they're ready to sign, they have to look at the book and then they'll say, I see what you mean, uh, but the treatment solves the problems. You know, if the middle's not dramatic enough. Most especially a problem that happens with novels is that the ending is not powerful enough and clear enough. The third act is not clear enough in many novels where you don't see that there's a turning point that goes from act two to act three because uh, the editors in New York are not as demanding as audiences are in a movie theater. They don't really look for turning points the same way an audience does. And, uh, and there are exceptions to all, you know, all this stuff. It's none of it is rules. But basically, a three-act structure needs to be there and it has to be dramatic. All three acts have to be dramatic and you have to have a protagonist that you can relate to. You don't have to like her, or, but you have to relate to her. And you have to have an antagonist who is worthy of her and is in every way as strong as she is because otherwise the ending is predictable and uh, the stronger the antagonist, the stronger the, the protagonist and the stronger the story is. So um, I hope that answers the question, but, but books that have at least some of those elements can be turned into movies. We actually, I used to have a, cl a class that is called uh, Designing Your Novel to Be a Film because the best place for that to happen is on your original drawing board. Make sure that when you design your novel that you include these, these things in the novel. And that way you won't be disappointed when nobody wants to make it into a film. Why does a book fail to become a movie? If somebody wants to adapt a book and they think they buy the rights, whatever it is, and just somehow doesn't translate, doesn't work out. Well, there hundreds of reasons why that can happen, but, but they come back in, in categories that, that you get used to. Uh, every book that's submitted to Hollywood is what's called covered. And uh, in my various webinars, I talk about coverage, and uh, coverage is an industry term for a, a story report where a reader in the story department of a agency or of a production company or a studio or uh, in any part of the business where stories go to be covered. And they're covered because the executives who make the decisions can't possibly read all the stories that come in. Too many things are submitted. Too many stories are submitted. And in the coverage, it covers every single part of the story, from a one-line pitch of the story to the genre of the story, the category, the length of the story, the quality of the writing, the dialogue, the characters, supporting characters, you know, main characters, supporting characters, plot, etc. So you get a full report in four or five pages. Uh, 
that analyzes the story. And, and, and it ends with a recommendation, pass, consider with development, you know, uh, or uh, accept with development, or just accept. And, and accepts are extremely rare. I mean, probably one to two percent uh, are in that category. And the reason that most books are turned down, I've already mentioned some of them, but has to do with uh, not clear who the protagonist is, not strong enough antagonist, too many characters, uh, can't figure out what's important, what's not important, uh, too much repetition, the dialogue, the characters don't sound different from each other, they all sound the same. And we all know from literary, you know, literature graduate school that one of the common questions that you asked is, you're just given lines of dialogue from plays and asked to identify the character by one line of dialogue. Because the great playwrights make their dialogue characteristic to each character. And Lady Macbeth would not be sounding like Juliet. You know, there there always be clear who's talking. And, and that's another reason for frequent turndowns. The audience isn't big enough. You know, a story about Latvian Americans take in a, in a small neighborhood in Detroit, you know, may get made as an indie movie if, if you know, somebody like Meryl Streep wants to be in it because she's Latvian, you know. But other than that, the chances are that Fox is not going to develop it because they're looking at audience appeal. You know, they're looking at demographics. So any of those reasons and all of those reasons are are reasons why a book gets turned down. Uh, sometimes a book is too internal and screenwriters struggle with it, but they can't figure out how to externalize the constant thinking and philosophizing of a character. There are examples of books that have done that well, uh, like The World According to Garth, you know, is an example, but they're usually internal stories are very hard to turn into films. Uh, and. And what happens is halfway through the attempt to do that, you realize you're inventing all the dialogue, and then how much, that, and therefore how true is this movie to the book at all? You know, is it even the same book? Because if the book did everything internally, and you're inventing all the dialogue, you know what I mean? It's it, it, so there are a lot of reasons, but they all have to do with um, with drama. Drama is about scenes, and the scene is which is is a place and time in which there is conflict. Two forces come together in conflict, and the conflict is resolved. Uh, and that scene is the unit of drama. And if the scenes in a book are not clear enough, scenes are very distinguished in books. I mean, in Vonnegut, for example, his scenes can be two sentences long. In uh, you know, in, in Faulkner, his scenes can be twenty pages long. And, but, but still, there'll be clear scenes. My favorite example of, a, I think, the shortest story in, the, in American literature is, uh, goes like this. Have you lived next door to a man who's trying to play, to learning to play the viola? That's what she asked the police when she handed them the empty revolver. It, it's, a, it's a short story by uh, <clears throat> Richard Browdigan. And, uh, but there's a whole scene, right? A whole story, a whole scene told in a couple of lines and just as tour de force to show that you don't need a lot of words to make a scene. Uh, we get it right away. 
and and that's drama is a scene like that and there are two kinds two components of drama as I talk about in my various books I mean one of them is action she hands them the empty revolver and the other is dialogue have you tried living next door to a person learning to play the viola you know that those are the two components of action and drama dialogue and action and dialogue like good morning how are you doing today is not dramatic and yet many novels are filled with it uh, with that kind of dialogue so the great novelists that have been made into great movies have vital dialogue that is really action dialogue like it's a line from Hemingway that I love to quote in creative writing classes these two people sitting near a train station and at one point she says to him would you please 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 stop talking and that's a great example of a piece of dialogue that is pure action you know that there is no hope for their relationship after she says that and and, and it goes on to say the man did not say anything for a moment then he asked would you like a beer <laughs> and, and we know you know it's all over between them but there's an example of how great dialogue is you know like from <clears throat> Chinatown my mother my sister my mother my sister my mother my sister remember that she said tell the truth and she keeps saying the same thing over and over again until he finally realizes that she's telling the truth and that's when you have you, you know that the writer knows what he's doing and that's why it's why screenplay writing is so much more difficult than novelists because there are the harshest rules in writing screenplays and, and the harsh rule really is only one harsh rule every single word in the screenplay is connected to every other word and in a novel that's just not true I mean you can't you know in a 600 page novel that just can't be true and it isn't true but it is true in the screenplay because if you say a word and the audience you know leaves the theater and they loved it otherwise you know at the bar they're going to say but why did he say that one thing to him like it made no sense you know take care of yourself why did he say that at the end of that scene and they won't let go of that until they figure it out and if they can't figure it out then they go there's something wrong with that story you know because it's all you know like you can't focus a camera on a red hat in a movie without making that pay off later and and that's just not true of novels for one thing novels kind of float in in the air of the reader you know as you read the book you paint pictures in your head and movies are much more demanding than that because they have to make decisions like what does she look like uh, and you you have to cast her with the right color hair and you know one of the most famous lines in history is from the Iliad when everyone knows Helen of Troy is supposed to be the most beautiful woman who ever lived right but Homer is not going to deal with that because that's just impossible so what happens is <laughs> it says when she appeared he says the elders of Troy were standing on the walls of Troy chattering like locusts with each other until Helen till, till a hush fell among them as Helen appeared and one of them says terrible indeed is her likeness to that of an immortal goddess and that is the entire description of Helen of Troy which you know can't be beat because it leaves it completely to your imagination what she looked like 
and he wasn't about to say she was, you know, five foot two, red hair, blue eyes, et cetera, which immediately will kill her beauty in some people's minds. And, and so it's, that's why drama is so much more challenging. It's the ultimate expression of storytelling, and it's why movies are, you know, hugely powerful instruments around the world. Correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Was All the President's Men an adaptation from Woodward and yeah. Bernstein's book? Okay. Yeah. The dialogue and that and the, and, and the, the, the running, I, I just remember in so many scenes they were running. And, and can you talk about that script in any way? You know, I, I'm not as familiar with it. Okay. Stories. Of, I mean, with the script as I'd like to be, because I mean, I'd like to have recently read the book and sure, the script. Sure. But one of the things that you do in a story like that is that you you add the running, because there probably isn't a lot of running in real life. Right. I mean, these journalists are probably too heavy to be running, <laughs> and, and they don't look like Robert Redford probably either. Yeah. <laughs> well, some of them might, but they're not. You know, but but I think that that's what the big challenge, like spotlight. Is, is an example. Yeah. They took a lot of, lot of reporting from Boston Globe and, and turned it into a dramatic movie that covered, you know, collapsed many years into a few years. Uh, you, you have to take those liberties, and that's why you end up saying inspired by a true story instead of based on a true story, et cetera. Uh, I've been through that many times. But adding action, adding drama is what you have to do. Right, in the scene in Spotlight where Stanley Tucci, you don't see him yet, you just hear him yelling at his assistant, and so I think something's thrown, and then the look on Mark Ruffalo's face, and, and that right there is enough to, to right. kind of set the stakes. You know, exactly, it's great. and it's, exa it's, it's good drama because it involves the audience immediately because you don't see what's happening, so you see a reaction to what's happening, so you have to figure out what's happening, and one of the common mistakes that you know, younger writers make is that they patronize the audience by explaining too much, by thinking that every single thing has to be, you know, there. And when I always say that when you're editing, like the top 10 rules of editing are all the same. Cut, 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 cut. Because when you're in doubt about whether you need something, that alone is a reason for cutting it. Just cut it. You don't need it. The audience will make the jump and will fill in the blanks. And if you don't let them fill in the blanks, it's called painting by the numbers, then you, you come across as patronizing to the audience and they, they get bored. They don't want to hear every detail. You don't have to say your honor in a court scene every, every single sentence. Uh, you don't have to say the character's name every time you talk to the character. I mean, these are, people get, get that out of their system after 10 years of writing, but at the beginning, you don't know where the lines are. And the sense of the audience, I mean, one of the things I like to talk about is the psychology of the audience. Like, it's not the psychology of the author that makes you read a book. You don't care about that. You know, it's just like you're listening to your friend talk about his uh, latest ballad in the hospital. I mean, how much do you care about how he felt about every day? You know, you, you pretend you care as long as you can, but if he has any sense at all, he'll keep it, keep it you know, cut it down, right? And the truth is, you don't care about the psychology of the characters either. That's not what's important. What's important is your psychology, as always, the audience's psychology. And that's why Hitchcock and Peter Weir really know what they're doing. That, that drive away in Witness is one of the most brilliant parts of the film, 
because of the length of the driveway. So it was a location choice. He's telling the location manager, I need a place that has a long, long, long driveway that will give me a 60 second tracking shot. You know, and in the birds, when the heroine takes this flashlight without even testing whether it works or not and starts heading up the, the wooden steps because she hears rustling in the attic, you know, that is the longest walk up the steps you've ever seen a film because it is so stupid that the audience needs at least three or four steps to get it out of their system, saying, oh, come on, why is it every actress, and why does she have to have white underwear on, and why is it always at the end of a horror film, and why doesn't she test that, you know, so once you get past that, okay, now she's on the middle step, and then you go through like, oh my God, why is she, you know, this doesn't make any sense, I, I can't stand this, I don't wanna watch this. And then a few more steps, and by the time she gets to the top step, you're ready, like, okay, I paid to get scared, this is it. And, and that is using the psychology of the audience. That's the timing that the audience needs to get into the exact right mood. You know, it's just like the speech in Julius Caesar where Mark Anthony comes up after Brutus's brilliant speech on the you know, corpse of, of Caesar, and Anthony comes up and praises you know, Brutus's speech and calls him the Honorable Brutus. And uh, by the end of his speech, he's turned the entire crowd against Brutus, even though they were all cheering for Brutus at the beginning of his speech. He takes the psychology of the audience and twists it around in a way that, you know, you can see it coming, but you don't care, you just wanna go there with him. Uh, and it's not about Anthony's, nobody cares about Anthony's psychology. You know, and nobody cares about Brutus's psychology there. That's not important. And nobody cares about Shakespeare's psychology because nobody knows what his psychology is. They said, you know, the greatness of Homer and Shakespeare, that they themselves were nowhere to be found in their work. Their characters were everywhere. And the characters speak directly to the audience. You know, and that, that's the hardest thing about writing is figuring that out. What are the biggest mistakes you see new screenwriters make their first screenplay? Uh, you mean literarily or? Structurally, dialogue, character, um, Because the biggest mistakes they make is usually their personalities, but. but uh, <laughs> of, the, of the actual writer or? Yeah. Oh, okay. But, but, but that aside, um, I think the biggest mistake is, is over explaining and uh, not knowing how to tunnel uh, the background of the story into the story instead of laying it out. Like we just developed a brilliant screenplay for the last several years in which the opening conversation just is not convincing because there is no other uh, explanation for the, the words in the conversation other than explaining to the audience what's going on. And, and that's a hard to avoid mistake because you know you've got to explain what's going on but if you do it overtly, the audience is gonna not believe the, the dialogue. They're not gonna believe, you know, they're gonna not be able to suspend their disbelief. So you have to sneak these things in to the story at, at times when they're needed and not too much too soon. One of the common mistakes, I think the, the, the root mistake beneath that mistake is thinking that the audience is not as smart as they are. It's, it, it's looking down on your audience. 
because respecting the audience is essential to good storytelling. You have to believe in the audience. And you know, imagine sitting on this country porch and telling a story with no audience, right? I find that very hard to imagine because storytelling is about audiences. You, you can immediately start telling the story if even one person shows up. But sitting there and telling it by yourself, that isn't what a story is, right? So if one person shows up and it's Jackie, you're going to tell it differently than if Sally showed up first. And if Sally and Jackie are there together, you're going to tell it differently than you would have to either one of them by themselves. That's just the nature of human communication. So not respecting the audience or not realizing that it's all about the audience is probably the biggest mistake. And it, and it takes a while to get out of that mistake because the only way to get out of it is through constant feedback that tells you it's not necessary because somebody told me once, like an editor is the person who tells a writer when to stop writing. And I thought that was actually a lot of truth to that because how's a writer going to know unless somebody says you don't need that? Um, and, and I think that that is often the case with first screenwriters is they, they put a lot of things in they don't need. Uh, we need much less than, than you think we do. We don't need a scene to come to an, you know, to come to an end. It's okay to cut out of it. I mean, writers are constantly have a great line at the end of a scene, but then they add a couple of more lines, They're insecurity lines, they call them. So we instantly just cross them out because they already had a great line. That's the end of the scene. And yes, everything hasn't been quite wrapped up, but it, that's, that adds energy. When you cut that, you're pouring energy into the story. When you leave it there, you're sucking energy out of the story because the audience is like bored through those last two lines and going, well, why did we need that? I was, I'm out of it at, you know, you had me at a low kind of, you know? And, and I think that's probably the most common mistake is overwriting, just overwriting. You said earlier personality? Just, well, screenwriters <laughs> have to be careful with their personalities because by nature they're very um, overtly, at least, self-confident, you know, aggressive people. Uh, mostly that's a, a mask for lack of self-confidence, which is a normal thing for a writer to have. Uh, we all have that, no matter what stage you reach, you'll always have the lack of self-confidence, but then the world's divided into those who do it anyway and those who let that stop them from doing it you know every actor has that before he goes on stage um, some of the greatest actors richard chamberlain used to throw up before he went on stage and and but he went on stage i mean it was just part of what he did you know you get nervous before you start and that's not a bad thing that's a good thing you know if you weren't nervous then you're not doing something important so, you know, if you're going into battle on the battlefield, are you, should you be afraid? Yes. If you weren't afraid, you'd be, you'd be nuts. So uh, I, I think that that's what happens in personality is that sometimes people are, compensate in an over-aggressive way and it's an automatic turnoff because one of the several things about succeeding in Hollywood is don't get on everyone's life as too short list. <laughs> I mean, and it's really true. I mean, that it's sometimes you get on it immediately and you'll never get off of it. It's very hard to break it. And, and you have to you know, realize that you, you need to act with the people in the business the way you would act with true friends. 
and uh, who will tell you you're an asshole if you're being an asshole? And but Hollywood won't. They'll just say thank you so much for coming. We'll <laughs> we'll be in touch with you, and you know that'll be the end of it. But they'll go asshole, you know, as soon as he's out of the room. And demanding, it's part of demanding because there's a kind of petulance that sets in the longer a writer has worked without, you know, reward and, and acclamation and compensation. And it, it's almost like, I deserve this, you're going to give it to me now. You know, I, I had an actress at dinner one night and in the middle of dinner she said, you know, a lot of other people, she, she said, I demand attention now. And it was really funny because the men thought that was cute and the women did not. They did not. My, she was not reinvited. Oh, no. No, the women definitely did not like that petulance because, you know, men thought it was sure, sure. cute because she was sexy and so on. But in today's world, uh, especially Hollywood, where the stakes are so high, everybody wants to get in. You know, thousands of people are lined up for every single position you could ask for. And uh, they want people who are cool and professional, not hot-headed and demanding. And when I see a writer is of the latter category, I, I just kind of run for the hills. And, I, and, and when I see a writer is not that way, when he's modest and so on, I will continue talking to him for years, even before I represent him or work with him, until I find something that you know I can work with, because he's so respectful and so, you know, not on my too short list, you know, he's, that's a very rare thing. But it's it's important when you think about it in any walk of life. You know, you're not gonna, the, the uncle who you can't stand to see at Thanksgiving is not the one that you wanna be representing or making a movie with. No? Is that, when, oh sorry to interrupt. Is that when someone's too self-aggrandizing? Like it's just this is the greatest thing, and they they won't take no for an answer, and it just yeah. becomes yeah. I mean that, that's part of it because you don't tell us how great it is. Just tell us the story. Get out of the way, you know, of the story. We don't want to hear about. We don't want to hear this is your first pitch. We don't want to hear, you know, you haven't done this much. We don't want to hear that you practice this and that you know exactly what to say. We, do, we want to see if you've got the goods, and that is the story. Like Mark Twain said, don't tell us the fat lady is going to sing. Bring her out and let her sing. You know, that, that's, that's what we want to see. In other words, don't draw attention to yourself because that is not what we're interested in. We're interested in the story. And maybe we'll get interested in you later like after you brought a couple of good stories in, then we go, by the way, you know, where are you from? And, you know, what's your story? But we don't want to deal with that at the beginning. Because the truth is, no matter who you are, if your story's good, we love you. You know, we love, because you told this story. And that's, that's a great, you know, kind of equalizer when you think about it. It's a, a real world of ideas. But if you start telling us about yourself and give us a chance to hate you, uh, before you even started telling the story, that, how stupid is that? And I have to say that years ago, I, I rarely, I stopped taking writers to pitches of their stories because they, most of the time, unsold the story after they sold it. Oh, no. For a very simple reason. They weren't looking at the buyer. They were in a coma. They were telling the story and they weren't watching the buyer's eyes, which is all that matters in a pitch. Like, I can see immediately if you're bored. And I'm gonna, you know, if I'm anybody at all, I'll switch 
to another story to pitch you. You know, I, because there's, that's what the, the buyer is thinking. Can I do, do I like this story? Can I do something with it? But sometimes he'll just hear one word, dragon, and that'll be it. Click, my eyes go like, let's see, I've got a 315 and then I've got a 330. Like I, my brain is thinking about other things because I know I can't acquire a dragon story. So why am I wasting this person's time? Well, the person's not even listening and looking at you, so he goes on talking. And, and, but the other thing happens too, he's already said enough to sell you. You're totally, this is what you're looking for. I can see it in your eyes, but he keeps talking. So after a while now, the buyer is looking at him. Instead of listening to the story, he's looking at him going, why is this guy still talking? I love this, I wanna ask some questions. You know what I mean? So that's an example of a writer forgetting about the most important part of his story, which is the audience. His audience, the reader, the audience is the most important part of the story. And when you forget it, they know, the reader knows that you've forgotten it. And, and then they're, they're tuned out. They close the book. Ken, of the many books that you've written, you have one you co-wrote entitled Writing Treatments That Sell, and maybe you can hold it up so people yep. can see it. It's a cool cover there. And uh, first off, can we define what is a treatment? Well, <laughs> this is one of the things that Shalai and I looked into when we wrote this book because um, we kept getting asked that question by clients. You know, what is a treatment? We have to explain it over and over again. And it suddenly occurred to us, what is a treatment ourselves? And what is their definition? So we did a survey of about 30 execs in television and film and asked them that question. How would you define a treatment? And we asked them about 10 other questions and we really based the book on their answers. And basically the answer is that a treatment is a relatively brief written pitch of a story intended to be dramatized as a motion picture for film or television. And it's written in user-friendly, uh, grammar-free, quick language that is easy to follow. And it contains, highlights the most important characters and events, the obligatory scenes in the story. That's what a treatment is. Now, so how long is a treatment? Relatively brief. Uh, three pages to say 15 pages. Once it's past 15, 20, it's getting no longer relatively brief. And there was no industry agreement on it. And, and basically treatments range from five to 10 pages, good treatments. And we recommend that because of the attention span of the, who you're dealing with, the audience, your reader, the buyer, uh, his attention span is limited and you do not want to extend it because he won't be there, she won't be there at the end of the story if you make it too long. So that's basically what a treatment is. And it's used for two purposes. It, it diagnoses the faults in a story. So you write a treatment of your story to see the faults in it. So it's a diagnostic tool. And then you fix them. And, and then it becomes a sales tool because it, so people are willing to read a treatment when they won't read a script because the script is a serious engagement, whereas treatment can be read relatively quickly. And those are, it's used in every part of the industry. And, and the, it's different from a synopsis because a synopsis is a, a dry, fully detailed uh, summary of a story. You'd find a synopsis in a coverage, for example. But the treatment is a pitch. It, it's the substitute for 
a live pitch. Like I'm doing a webinar called Pitch Perfect, which is about pitching uh, and when you get the rare occasion to do that. But now with the internet, we're, we're going to do a virtual pitching so that people can actually pitch to a producer and get an answer. Uh, and a pitch is extremely fortunate chance to sell your story. And again, you, you do not want to be prefacing it with anything. You don't want to reveal your personality. That's not what it's about. You want to just tell how strong your story is by showing the story. And uh, a treatment is the, the best you can do if you don't have the opportunity to pitch live. So the treatment replaces a pitch and is what most people use. And they use it through email and through uh, any other method they have to hand a piece of paper to someone else. Is there a chapter or two that you were surprised that people commented on? They had questions or even from Amazon reviews? Was there, is there a point in the book where people are, there's, it's just a, a topic of conversation more so than others? You know, I'd love to say that there is, but honestly, we, we gotten pretty strong response, positive response to the whole book. But I think the parts that, that cause people, that make people the most curious have to do with our analysis of a movie of the week. And the, when we first wrote the book, there were a lot of movies of the week in which we talked about the seven act structure of a television show. And the seven act structure, you know, there is a three act structure to stories. All stories have a three act structure. But in the Renaissance, for example, stories had five acts. And that's because they divided the horrible act two that everyone hates. I call it the Serengeti plane. Uh, because it's, you know, it's the hardest part of the writing. They divide it into three acts, and now there's a five-act story. And it's easier to write, because each act has a beginning, middle, and end, and each act can be subdivided into twists and turns and scenes. So television goes, goes even further and makes it seven acts, and that's because of commercials that have to come after each act, etc. So people were curious to see that, but when they saw that that the executives at the studios actually had a chart. Some of them actually took the chart into a pitch meeting and wrote down, um, jotted down what, you know, in the chart, what the writer, what the pitch was saying about what happens in each act and so on. So here's a filled out one based on a movie that we produced. And it shows one-liners of the scenes that occur in each act. And I think people realized that this was, um, they didn't realize how mechanical it was. And, and honestly, when I hear that, which I do often from writers when I'm, in the old days, at least when I was teaching at university extensions all over the country, uh, I realized that they didn't have the mentality to be writers. So let me give you a great example. A woman named Millie Meyer, God rest her soul, wonderful, wonderful lady, was a client for years, came up to me at a Riverside, UC Riverside, workshop after and she goes, I didn't want to say anything in front of the class because I didn't want people to make fun of me. But I took my favorite book, The Grapes of Wrath, and I outlined it. And is that stupid? And I said, no, you're the only craftsman in the class. <laughs> I mean, that's what a carpenter would do if he wanted to make a table. He would take a table apart and see how it was put together. That's what a mechanic would do if he wanted to build an engine. He'd take an engine apart. So that's exactly what you do. And when, I, when they see this kind of breakdown, they understand, you know, exactly 
how the mechanics of it work. And honestly, until you get to that point, you're really not ready to be a professional writer because if you thought that writing was a magic, you know, magic trick that you have to pull off every time or a miracle, which I guess most writers probably would think miracle rather than magic trick, then it's impossible, right? But it's not possible. I mean, and it's not impossible. It's possible to be a writer. People have been writers for centuries. They've been storytellers. And, and storytellers tell stories in parts and they know what the parts are and they do them in a way that makes sense. And uh, so the sooner you get down to the mechanics of how it works, the better. And that's what we try to do in our books is to show people the mechanics. I'm looking through for another, there's another page in here where we show what we call an intensity chart where you kind of type one-liners of your whole story on a, on a single piece of paper. One-liners of all the important scenes in the story. Then you go between the lines and let's say you put hyphens, two hyphens for a non-dramatic scene or a scene with relatively little drama. And like five hyphens for a scene with much more drama. And 10 hyphens with maximum drama, right? So now you've got a page that has all these hyphens on it underneath the sentences, right? Then you draw a line across the hyphens, uh, connecting the hyphens. And then you turn it on its side. You turn the piece of paper on its side, and what you've got is a, something that looks like a roller coaster. and Because it, it, it shows you the ups and downs in your stories based on the drama, the intensity of the drama in your stories. And uh, that is a great diagnostic tool because if you see that there's a whole slope that in which the thing keeps going down, 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 and doesn't go up for a while, or it levels off, then you know you need to work on that part of your story. So that's what I call the mechanical approach. You know what I mean by mechanics? Like when you when you want to outline a screenplay or a book, you just use three three by five cards, and you put on those three by five cards the obligatory scenes in the book, and you won't fill up a whole card because it'll just be a couple of words on each card, and what you understand when you start doing that is that creation of a literary work is what Aristotle called an imitation of reality. It's not reality. You're not re, you know, building the cider house and, and the world around the cider house. You're faking it. You're making the reader believe it's there. And, and you do that mechanically by, like I would if I were making the movie. I build a house front that looks like the cider house, right? But it wouldn't have a back because I'm only going to shoot the front of it. So that's what you're doing when you're writing. You're you're just doing what's necessary to create the illusion that you're trying to create, and the audience believes that the illusion is real because it wants to believe that, and you've given them enough evidence to make them believe it. So you know when you're watching one of the old movies when they were just nobody was dealing with production value the way we do now. You know, it just takes a little bit to make you believe in the story, even if the acting is bad, right? Even if the set is laughable, but you still are in the story if the story is good. You know, if, if the characters are good and the dialogue is good. And that's one of the things that we try to instill in writers is learn the mechanics of it because it's easier than, than you make it. You're not having to recreate a whole world. You're, you're, you need to do the right strokes to make the painting look like a person. And uh, that's what we try to do in, you know, the treatment book.
When Millie approached you after the course in Riverside and said, I'm so silly, I did this, you saw something in her that if the other writer said, well, I don't want to take the Grapes of Wrath and, and outline it, well, then they're kind of, they believe in this romance of being able to write and just sort of sit down and I'm going to take a bottle of scotch and a cigarette and pound away all the right. things that happen to me. They're, they're in great. love with the image of being a writer. You know, it's the romance of being a writer, the struggle, the torment, the agony and the ecstasy, all of those grandiose concepts that writers have done to get bigger pay, paydays. Uh, you know, that's all good. Like I had a writer who was a client for years, a dear friend, who like, we sold like 12 of his screenplays. And, and it took him, honestly, a week to write a screenplay. Wow. And uh, it took me three years to train him never, never to admit that. And, and so we're, I got him an agent and the agent was always beating him up and saying, you can't say that. You you have to you have to say you need three months, six months, or whatever. You can't say you do it in a week. They won't. You know, we're trying to get a million dollars for this. You know, and and that's the truth is you can do it in a week, but you can you know put it aside for two months and then go back and work on it some more and so on. But because the reality of writing is is much easier than uh, than the the myth of it, and. Uh, Walker Percy, one of my favorite novelists, who <coughs> wrote The Last Picture Show, said, uh, perhaps the, the, the secret of speaking is having something to say. And that's, that's what it's all about. You have a story to tell, then you can tell it. It's not a problem. Just don't start writing it until you know the story. Like, you don't start telling a joke before you know the joke, right? You don't walk in with three by five cards and tell a joke from a three by five card. Uh, you you know the thing by heart, and then you you tell it, and uh, it's not the agony. It doesn't need to be the agony. And, and when you, when you don't have a structure, that's when you haven't learned the mechanics of it, like the productive two kinds of productive writers. When you learn the mechanics, you can be happy, and you can do it whenever you want to do it. Like any writer who knows them will tell you, they can write on trains, buses, planes. They can write standing up, sitting down. I had a dear friend, Nancy Friedman, my client for years, who wrote on her back for the last 10 years of her life because she couldn't sit up and she couldn't stand up. Mm. And so she wrote it on her back and she just kept writing books. And you, you, the writing is easier if you know what you're doing. And you know whether it's Harlan Ellison or Ray Bradbury, they'll all tell you the same thing. But when you think it's this huge agony, and it is, like Virginia Woolf, you know, and so on, she's never figured it out. That's why. She, she's believed that it has to be an agony to, to be good. And I, I don't think Shakespeare was an agony. I think he was just dashing the stuff off as fast as he could write because he was reading everything that was coming from Italy and from, you know, south of Europe and uh, stealing it like crazy, redoing it, copying it. He heard stories all around, and he just couldn't wait, you know, before going to the pub and after going to the pub to sit down and dash it off. And he revised. You know, he spent a lot of time revising. We know that from the folios. But um, it's, it's, not the, it's not the living in the garret starving thing that has to happen at all. It's just figuring out what you're doing. It's a craft. You know, it's a craft that has to be learned. And the art comes in. There are brilliant people who do the craft, and there are not so brilliant people who can do the craft. So there's plenty of room for art, but um, it's not doesn't have to be 
cutting your ear off kind of thing. Can we go back for a moment for the uh, graph you were referring to and just sure, see the intensity yeah. on the side, as you mentioned? Yeah, this, this shows you what, you know, this is what you're doing as you do it. You, you're writing little sort sentences and you're putting hyphens and then you're drawing a line connecting them all. But then when you put it on the side, you can see the shape of your story. And you can see where it needs some attention. You know, where the, you know, there is all these peaks here, but no real valleys. So it would be much more dramatic if you dropped some of the intensity or you added less intense scenes in here so that the rises would be greater, et cetera. And, you know, it could be that everything is just fine when you do this and it looks really perfect, but most of the time you'll discover that it's not a roller coaster ride, which is what you want, you know, your reader to go on. You want them to, to be screaming all the time, basically. And then toward the end, you see the highest peak and then it levels down. Yeah, it levels like, down, mm -hmm. although, you know, in today's storytelling world, maybe this is not the right way to end the story. Hmm. You know, it might be better to end on a higher peak. Oh, okay. You and that's have, Jaws? Sorry. No, no, this is, this is just a, a made-up story that we use as an example here. Yeah. So, but, but you should. That, I mean, that's just like my client Millie Meyer outlined The Grapes of Wrath. You sit, sit down with a movie like Jaws or like The Meg that's coming out in August uh, from Warner Brothers and, and chart it. And, and you'll see how conscious the story is uh, of these ups and downs. I mean, people, th they know what they're doing. Directors are known for their ability to do that. And if you want, you know, you want a crazy, all-out, screaming ride, uh, go see Lara Croft or one of the James Bond movies, and you'll, you'll see that that's, that's what they try to deliver to you. And if you want a more tempered ride where you can get deeper into the story because you have a moment to rest between peaks, then you'll see an, another kind of story. Sorry, I cut you off, but you were saying that today's peaks might end a little higher. Would that be because of there's a possibility of a sequel or? Yeah, I mean, usually it's, it's that. And it's also because we are, to, ever since the moment that Star Wars hit the screens, I'll never forget that moment because when I watched that movie, I thought, this is a watershed in the history of movies. We will never look at movies the same way again because the scenes were the shortest scenes I've ever seen. You know, the scenes before that probably averaged two to three minutes. But when in Star Wars, the scenes seemed like they lasted six seconds or 10 seconds. And you could not see everything in the scene, which made you instantly fall in love with the movie because you believed in the world if it was so chock full of stuff you couldn't see at all. You just have to go see it again. And I thought, this is brilliant. And it was a foreshadowing of the attention span that we are now fully living with. We weren't quite there yet when it came out. It was a little ahead of its time, but it totally predicted the world we live in now where our attention span is just minute because we're being bombarded by so many pieces of information from so many directions. We're distracted all the time. And, you know, the text is ringing, the phone is ringing, the, the email is ringing, you know, our, our head is ringing, our eyes are buzzing from, you know, somebody said Americans look at 52,000 commercials every day in a normal day. And I think that's true. I mean, if, assuming you commute to work and you're looking at everything out there, uh, buses going by, you know, billboards, et cetera. So I think that um, 
there's another example of a filmmaker who understood the audience psychology and who directly addressed it, who directly addressed that that's what he's all about, is grabbing your psychology and playing with it, and you love it, because nobody's done that to you before. Nobody's, nobody was making movies that you had to immediately go see again, because you wanted to see what that little gizmo was in the, in the far corner that you didn't happen to focus on, and now the scene's over, and you're all to another scene, and you miss that. So you got to go back and train your eye to watch for that corner, and you know how that is. You you're always thinking, next time I watch it, I'm going to really watch this corner or some, this corner because I know I don't have a chance to see it all, and that that is really screwing with the psychology of the audience. Love that. Yet another book of yours is "Sell Your Story to Hollywood: The Writer's Pocket Guide to the Business of Show Business." Um, I know there's lots of great nuggets in there. Something I saw from the Amazon page, there are four things in order that I'm about to read that'll guarantee success. I think, <laughs> and this is in the foreword or something. Perseverance, and this is in this order, or determination or stamina, connection, be fun to work with, and lastly, talent. Really, that's the order? Yeah, that's definitely the order. I mean. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I've, in my mind, I've added a, another one before talent, which is luck. Oh, okay. Uh, luck is definitely important. But um, yeah, you can think about it. Some movies get made just because of perseverance. Somebody keeps persevering and they'll, they can get the movie made. And somebody can make a movie because they have connections. You know, Sofia Coppola, you know, she got to make a movie. She's got incredible connections. And many other people in Hollywood. and. Uh, being fun to work with, that happens all the time. Movies get made because of that. But I've never really seen a movie get made just because of talent. So of all these things, uh, the three that I, that I started with, like Perseverance, et cetera, being fun to work with, these are sufficient causes of movies. In other words, all you need is one of those and you're able to make a movie. But talent is not sufficient. You have to have talent plus one of those other things to make a movie, and there's plenty of talent around. Uh, the good news, I mean, that's, so that's the bad news. Talent is not enough to make a movie. Uh, but the good news is that if you have talent, it's what el everybody's looking for in Hollywood. They're looking for somebody who's truly talented because they don't want movies that are just made with perseverance or being fun to work with or having connections. They want truly good movies. So if you've got talent, that's great, but you need to get those other things. You need to persevere. It's not a, you know, a career for the faint-hearted. Uh, you know, if you say, I'm going to give myself five years and then I'm gonna go back to my horse ranch in Utah, you'll be back there before you know it because life loves little deals like that and it always gets you back to the horse ranch. Uh, if you say that it'll be no limit on my career, I'm going to continue no matter what, um, then you've got a chance to do it. And maybe you'll get lucky along the way, but I always say build the tracks for success, don't build them based on luck. Um, so yeah, that's luck is an important part of it because sometimes you can have everything ready to go and somebody comes out with a similar movie and you can't do it. Going back to the school of thought of two types of people, unproductive, negative versus positive, what about unharnessed talent versus harnessed talent. And I'm making my own little genre here, but people that, there's so much talent here, but there's a lot of people that don't harness it 
and they spin their reels talking about these ideas. How does someone go into the harnessed category? Well, it, it, going into the harnessed category just means discipline to sit down and actually figure out time and use the time and just, you know, determined to do it. You have to be determined. You have to persevere. Uh, there are a lot of people that have what I call artistic syndrome who would like to be creative, who say they're creative, who, shy, who show some signs of creativity. But creativity is actually having finished a script, you know, having finished a novel, uh, and continuing to write another one while you're waiting for the reaction on the first one. Uh, creativity is like, I can't stop writing this. I keep getting stories and I keep, can't wait to get to the next one. So you don't really wait at all when you send it out. You, you just, now I can do the next one. You keep writing. And, and that's somebody who's harnessing their talent. Unharnessed means when you've booby-trapped your talent by either not sitting down, being a fear of failure, or whatever your reasons are, procrastination. Uh, you know, Tony Robbins always says the best way to deal with procrastination Procrastination is to just postpone it. <laughs> there you go, yeah. You, know, you can do that later, but right now, get to work. So, harness talent is all a matter of discipline and determination. You know, starts with determination, turns it into discipline. Discipline turns into work. Work is based on time allotted to it. Um, as the ancient philosopher Hesiod said, if you put a little upon a little, soon it will become a lot. That's it. You do five pages a day. That's 60 pages, you know, after 12 days, right? So it's, it's just inevitable. It's the law of accumulating capital. And if people aren't doing that, then they're, they're completely unharnessed. And the only person who can really harness a writer is himself. So you can't, nobody can harness for you. You can get a manager to help you with that. You can get a disciplinarian to help you with it. But at the end of the day, there are more ways to evade discipline than there are to impose it. That's the, the genius of humanity, right? Lastly, you said something about being called back to the horse ranch, giving yourself five years. Someone just commented on our channel the other day, and they had a very valid point about give yourself three years. They were referring to acting. And I agreed with a lot of their, their statements, but they said they gave up this acting pursuit and they should have done it sooner, and now they have a corporate job and things are much better for them. Should someone really put this like, I mean, my, my argument was, well, what if they know they're never gonna be sort of this corporate type? I mean, it takes a certain type to sit behind a desk or attend meetings and pretend like you really wanna be there. Some people aren't cut out for that, and what if you know that about yourself? Should you really give yourself this time limit? What if you know that you're not cut out for the corporate world? Yeah, their, their point was, give yourself three years max to come to L.A. or whatever, become an actor, you could insert writing. That's, that's like saying, give yourself a year to go to Europe and get your wild oats out of your system before you settle down and get engaged or something. You know, if that's the way you're looking at it, then it will just be a three-year lark. You know, it, it's not a career commitment. You know, there, there's a great great moment in a movie called Burlesque. I don't know if you saw that movie, but it's uh, Christina Aguilera is in it. And in one of the opening scenes in her little town, she goes to the bus station and she stands in front of the ticket window and she says, I, I, need, I want a ticket to LA. And he looks at her and goes, one way around trip. And she goes, you gotta be fucking kidding me. 
<laughs> and, and it's 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 the line in the movie that defines career commitment. You know, she's not going to go to L.A. and come back. She's going to L.A. Period. That's the end of the story. And that's why movies like that and La La Land, you know, put artists in tears because they're true, true examples of true stories about what artists go through when they make decisions to give up things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I used to give a class in, at UCLA called Keeping Your Spirits Up for Creative People. And one day I was going around the circle on the first day of class having people introduce themselves. They were mostly actors and actresses who signed up for it for obvious reasons. And uh, the first one, I said, please give us your name so we'll remember your name and where you're from. Or, you know, give us your name and where you're from and um, what is the, tell us what is the question that you hate to hear most you know, at a party in L.A.? And so the first woman says, my name is Carol and uh, I'm from Detroit. And the question I hate to hear the most is, when are you going to go back to Detroit and work for the post office? And I said, and how do you react to that? She goes, usually by bursting into tears and running out of the room. I go, oh, okay, so we're, we're going to work on that in this class. So I asked for next class, next person, my name is Alice, I'm from Southern California, and uh, the question I hate to hear the most at parties is, what have you been in big lately that I've seen? <laughs> and I said, and how do you react to that? She goes, I say the Pacific Ocean. So there's an example of a harnessed person and an unharnessed person, right? The harnessed person knows that she's going to get stupid questions from stupid people, insensitive people who aren't really thinking, and that there's nothing in the world that's going to stop that from happening. So she's going to protect herself by coming up with an answer beforehand so she doesn't have to run out of the room and cry. And the other person is unharnessed because she goes out of the room and cries. She's the one that believes this artistry thing is some magic, you know, miracle that has to happen. And she doesn't understand it's mechanical. You know, first thing you have to do is protect your biggest asset, which is your brain. And if you haven't figured out how to do that, then don't go out in public yet because people are not going to start suddenly being sensitive the moment you appear in public. They've never shown any sign of it in human history, right? Mm -hmm. I always love this uh, a book I read ago years ago as a graduate student called It Began in Babel, A History of the World, you know, told with a sense of humor. And it, 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 the epitaph of the book at the beginning is, uh, when you really think about it, people on the whole are extremely stupid. And it's a carving on the walls of Nineveh, 3200 BC. And you know, it's kind of comforting to read that because you go, well, nothing's changed. Right. You know, we're still there, we're still stupid, and you know, that's part of the human comedy. But don't be stupid if it's your, you know, your whole career at stake. You're the one who has to build the, you know, use the tools to build a defense around yourself so you can continue your career. And uh, people are not going to help you until they see that you've got that figured out. Then they'll help you. You know, it's just the way they are. That goes back to what you said about the sort of crackpot neighbor in the garage making these paintings and then everyone thinks they're crazy until they sell right. one for a million or two and then all of a sudden everyone wants to know them. So Yeah, and everyone thinks you're a genius and, and, and predicts and said, I always knew you would do well. 
Like my father told me I was an idiot when I became a professor. Like he didn't understand how I was going to make a living because I didn't sign up for pre-med. I signed up for classics in college. And 19 years later, when I told him I was leaving being a professor for, you know, being a producer, he told me I was crazy that uh, how was I going to make a living? And then four weeks later, he was on the set of one of my movies and said, this is great. Keep doing this. You know, so you, if you put a lot of truck on what other people think, you, you'll be a mess all your life. And one of the things I really hate to see is someone who is all about just pleasing people and will say whatever they need to say to please the people in front of them. And then, you know, you realize they don't have a mind of their own. Uh, and that's that's too bad, too bad to, to lose your life, to, to spend your life without a mind of your own. It's a terrible, a mind is a terrible thing to lose, as they say. And the writer is somebody, I think, who's exploited their mind to the, to the max and, and taken, you know, followed its lead into places that it would never have imagined they would go. And I think that's a heroic, you know, a heroic way of life. And the world needs more storytellers. Can I have a quote here from the late author Philip Roth? And quote is, the road to hell is paved with works in progress. <laughs> yeah, that's worse than good intentions, right? Um, and was that a question? It's a statement and, and a question, I guess, in that do you have any ideas on that? I know it's, it's kind of a, a thing I'm just throwing out here. but Well, I think unfinished works are... Um, the, the kind of characteristic debris of the writer's life, um, of any visionary's life. I mean, the, the discards that Leonardo da Vinci had in his studio were prodigious. And um, you, you just have a lot of ideas and you can't do them all. And one of the methods that I've developed over the years is to actually set aside a new idea and give it a two-week rest and, and check in with it in two weeks to see whether you even remember the idea. Uh, and, and the key to doing that as a writer is not to write it down. See, it's like a basic rule that I have is that if you have an idea, and as a writer, your immediate goal is to write it down, get it down, because that's what writers do. If you can train your brain not to do that, you're gonna have much better product in the long run because you're not writing every single thing down, including every bad thing. So by not writing it down, when you revisit it two weeks from now, uh, if you don't remember it, that's great. That means one lousy idea went away, as opposed to trying to do something with every single idea that you have. So I think that's part of what creative people learn is how to manage their own minds. Uh, and because I was an accountant's son, I long ago analyzed the creative process the creative mind and decided that they weren't just crazy the way a lot of people think. They actually is a method to creativity. Um, and in fact, it spreads across every discipline, whether you're a physicist or a mathematician or, a, you know, an inventor or a writer or an artist, the creative process has the same steps and the same general pattern. So if you can understand the process, then you aren't nearly as neurotic as you are if you don't understand it. You know, my, one of my goals was to not be crazy um, 
Salvador, Salvador Dali said one of my favorite things about this. He said, the difference between myself and a madman is that I am not mad. And, and I love that because it's, it's exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's understanding the method in your madness, as Shakespeare put it. And if you can understand that, then you don't have to be unhappy and neurotic in order to be a productive writer. Speaking of which, writing things down, do you make lists? I do make lists, um, but kind of limited. I mean, what I, what I have instead is a very complicated method of time management that involves a chart that I make uh, regularly. And it, the chart has room for some lists, but most of what I do is doing the same things in compartments of time that I believe are the right compartments for what I do. I know in our last interview, which was about a year, a year and a half ago, we talked about um, one of your books and you talked about time management and that you know creative people that get things done, they're very aware of time. So then I started to monitor myself. Am I really as aware of time as I should be? Do, do, maybe I'm not aware enough. And so it became this new thing where you were talking about before that just that most people that are very productive, they know exactly how much time something takes them. And, and I thought that was interesting because I thought I was aware of time and then when I started listening to that, I realized, no, I'm actually not because I don't know how much time and I'm, I'm you know, and it ends up where I'm not giving myself enough of it. So can, can someone be too aware of time though, where it becomes a hindrance? Uh, yeah, I think that's possible in today's world, especially with all the Apple watches and technology devices for keeping track of time. Um, and that's a, a whole separate subject, but it's very connected with creativity because time is all we have. I mean, there, there are two things in life you can manage. One is work and one is time. And work, uh, one of them is infinite and the other one is finite. So without even talking further about it, you think about that and realize that by definition, you cannot manage an infinite thing, right? An infinite element can't be managed, but a finite one can. But for some reason along the way, as we grow up in, in the world, we think that the wrong one is infinite and we think it's time. And it's not true. The, the only one that time is infinite for is God. Uh, for the rest of us, it's all too finite. But what is infinite is work. Work is completely infinite because good work produces more work. You know, as my son once told me, Dad, you'll never catch up. I was telling him, you know, I really hope I can catch up this weekend. And he goes, you're going to never catch up. And I, he's right, because work is infinite. If it's good work, it generates more work. If it's bad work, it generates more work. So no matter how you look at it, work is infinite. You can't manage work. You, you can only manage time. And you can manage time if you know how to compartmentalize it in a productive way that works with your particular mind. What I mean by that is that uh, I think that the first step in manage, managing time other than keeping track of your time like you were talking about. Uh, I, when I gave classes on that and when I'm consulting with individuals about their time management, I always start by having them make a weekly chart of their time. And you ask people how many hours are there in a week and they don't even know because it just never occurred to them. 
but there is a finite number of hours in every week. And what I want to know first is, what do you do with those hours? Exactly how many hours do you spend sleeping, eating, you know, walking, exercising, talking on the phone, texting, emailing, and, uh, and working on the things you're supposed to work on and doing errands and doing all the other things that you don't really want to do, but you kind of have to do to be human. So once you know that, the next step is to figure out attention span. Because when I was a professor, I used to have students who would come and say they were failing history and they didn't get it because they're spending six hours a day studying history. And I go, wait a minute, six hours a day? Yeah, because I'm failing in it. I go, well, it's very possible that you're spending too much time, not too little time. Because what happens during those six hours is probably not the most productive way of studying history. And we would rearrange their patterns so that they would actually study history only one hour a day, but do it in an uninterrupted day, way. And, and here's what you do during that hour, etc. And so what we're trying to figure out is what is your attention span for an individual subject? So if we know that this person can pay attention to history for one hour, and after that, you know, her mind starts wandering, then it's complete waste of time, literally, to spend more than one hour studying history at a time. That's what I call a compartment of time. So if it comes to your writing, how much time can you write being fully focused and not thinking about the outside world, etc.? And that's the compartment that where your attention span is at its max. Because if you're doing anything where your attention span is not at its max, you are basically wasting your time and your energy. And those, both of those things have a negative kind of depressive effect on your motivation. They're not good. So you really want to figure out your attention span. And then you want to arrange your life in compartments of time that have to do with attention span. Uh, and when it comes to being conscious of time, one of my rules has been from the very first time I started thinking of these things when I was like 19. So I stopped wearing a watch because I realized that the only way I was going to be productive with my kind of interests and activities was if I lived in my own time and did not live in everybody else's time. But everywhere you look, there's a clock on the wall. There's big, big bin on the horizon. There's, you know, television mon monitors with countdowns on them. There's everything out there reminding you of the world's time. And the world's time is not your time. You don't have all the time in the world. You have your own time. So I discovered a method years ago, which is simply the stopwatch method, which is that instead of using clocks, you use a stopwatch. And you tell yourself, for example, I'm going to write for an hour and a half today, no matter what. And I'm going to monitor that on a stopwatch. And I will turn the stopwatch on when I'm actually writing. And when I'm not writing, like if the phone rings and I have to take it or the house burned down and I have to deal with that, then I will turn off the stopwatch until that particular interruption is over with. And then I'll go back until I get my hour and a half on the stopwatch. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're doing it 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. or 8 p.m., etc. As long as you get that hour and a half on the stopwatch, you are... Uh, you know, you're in good shape. 
So sometimes I have three or four stopwatches around depending on what project I'm applying them to. And of course I've got my computer stopwatch and I rarely look at the time except if there's an appointment or something that I have to be aware of because I'm really focused on, you know, my time, which is the stopwatch's time. And that's what I need to be focused on if I want to, you know, be in that unique category of people who create things and in my case, manage people, create things. So you mentioned a conversation that you had about work and how it's good work or bad work is never really finished. And, you know, we're in this new age of these sort of gurus and these like success articles on, you know, five tips to make you more productive, whatever. And so something David was talking about was a sustained obsession. He said that he'd read and heard from so many people that most successful people are just obsessed with their work. They're workaholics. You think that's true? Uh, there's a lot of truth in it, and I've gone through that same uh, thought process, especially when writing a book about the creative mind. And uh, I don't think that workaholics is the right word for it. I call it the type C personality. And uh, because the workaholics comes from the concept of the Cellier's concept of the type A and type B personality. And from what I can make out, the type A personality is the unhappy workaholic who can't do anything in life except work and who basically is making himself and the people around him miserable because of his work, because his obsessive need to be working all the time. And then there's the type P personality who never is very well defined and, and somehow doesn't become uh, an ideal as Cellier describes him, but is somebody who's well adjusted and doesn't feel the same crazy pressures that the type A feels. And I thought, well, the problem with that theory is that it leaves out people who absolutely love their work and who are able to live you know, other full lives at the same time. Uh, and I started thinking about that and realizing there are a lot of people like that. And I call them type C's in one of my books. And the type C is the creative personality that uh, loves to work, would probably be rather be working than anything else, but isn't uh, negatively impacted by that at all. Instead, they just thrive on their work. I mean, there's an example I saw long ago is Pablo Casals, uh, the great you know, cellist, uh, was so crippled with arthritis when he got to be older uh, that he had to be carried from his bed every morning to his piano bench. And because uh, he warmed up every day by playing the piano for half an hour, an hour. And, but, but he got to the point where he couldn't walk to the bench. He had to be carried, carried to the bench and then s stacked onto his bench. And his arms had to be lifted onto the keyboard. And then he would slowly but surely start playing for an hour. And at the end of the hour, he got up and walked to, to, you know, to the kitchen for breakfast. Uh, and he did this every day in his last 10 years. And he was reactivating his body through the creative, you know, the creative process that he was very well in tune with. And I realized that type C personalities are people who uh, have this you know, creative affliction, uh, or whatever you call it, this gift, and, but, but understand it as opposed to those who don't understand it and who have often tragic endings like Sylvia Plath or Hemingway or Virginia Woolf or many others in the creative world who never understand their process, who think that every time uh, they finish a book 
it's the end of the world and they go into a deep depression. Uh, this is very common in the creative world is to be depressed after you finish a work. So when you really think about that, the solution is obvious. Never get to the point where you're finishing a work. And that happens on the negative side for a lot of people who can never finish their book or never finish their article or never finish their poem because they're afraid of finishing, fear of finishing. And, and as a tenured professor, I was always on committees um, judging other people who couldn't finish anything. And one of my colleagues who, like me, had published many books, we were both on the same committee judging another colleague who had not finished a single book. And my colleague said to me, you know, you and I would, would write a book in the time it takes him to research um, a chapter of a book. And I said, yeah, because I always do my research last. You know, I write the book first and then do the research. And uh, so I already know it's going to end. But to get back to this finishing idea of finishing, um, a simple solution to this postpartum depression is to, uh, when you know that you're almost done, when you know that you're in the home stretch of, of, of a book or of a screenplay or whatever it is, stop, take a day off, take two days off, because the energy of finishing is so huge that it will easily be recalled when you sit down again to allow it into this compartment that you're using. But take a day off instead and start your next project. Truly get into your next project because every creative person has another project that's dying to be next. So sit down and start it and go on it, do it to the point where you can't wait to go on with it. And then stop and go back and finish the project you were finishing and you'll discover that there is no, no, no more any postpartum depression because you haven't allowed it. You've simply managed the time, you know, the finite commodity at your disposal. You've managed the time so you don't have to deal with that. Because being depressed is basically most of the time a waste of time for an artist. Uh, you can allow it for a while if it gives you great ideas and deepens your pathos and the things that you need to draw on. But it's basically, too much of it is a waste of time. And, you know, one of my mentors years ago, John Gardner, the novelist, said uh, people should just start doing more. It gets rid of all the moods they're having. You know, if you're in a down mood, get up and run around the block. And literally, that works. I mean, if you get your body going and run around the block, it's hard to be in that kind of morbid, depressed state you were in before. Uh, so managing your moods like that is what separates a productive, happy creative person from a productive, unhappy creative person. You notice I'm not talking about the unproductive ones. That's a whole different subject. But I'm talking about people who are creatively productive and have careers. They're still divided into the unhappy ones and the happy ones. And it's a matter of understanding, I think, how your mind is working that makes you part of the happy group and you don't have to be part of the unhappy group despite a lot of um, urban myths to the contrary that basically say the artist got to be suffering and tortured and all of that that's really not necessary well you get more attention that way i know julia cameron talks about um, and I'm, I'm butchering this i'm sure but that the unhappy blocked artist gets a lot of attention and pats on the back and friends around them whereas the productive 
happier person finds themselves sometimes alone because it's a little threatening or it's, it's just hard to, you know. Yeah, but be, being alone is wonderful. So the, the, <laughs> the, happy, un, the, the happy productive one, artist loves being alone. And uh, he loves being with people too, but loves being alone because that's truly when he's uh, are, are under the most command of all of his powers and facilities. When nothing can interrupt him and, and he's focused on the work, that's great. Um, and, and getting too much sympathy, I mean, as a literary manager who's managed hundreds of writers over my career, um, I think that uh, you, the, the ones who are unhappy and looking for attention, you really get tired of them fast if you're dealing with them all the time. I mean, if they're in your family and everything and you only have to see them once a week, okay, fine. If you only have to see them at Thanksgiving dinner, okay, even better. But if you're, you know, somebody who deals with them every day, sooner or later, the ones who are constantly complaining go on to your life is too short list. And those are not the ones you're looking for. And they're what I call pseudo artists who ends up, end up not being uh, productive most of the time. You know, who, who are longing to be artists but don't have the mental discipline to, to actually do it. Going back to Philip Roth again, seeing interviews with him toward the later years of his life, he had moved from New York City to sort of the Connecticut woods to be left alone. And all of the journalists said, isn't it lonely here for you? And he said, it is, but I enjoy it. There's no, there's no friction, there's nothing. Because I guess, he'd, I guess it was after Portnoy's complaint or one of the, he was just receiving so much attention and he was bombarded with people's opinions and this was just an easier way for him to continue. And I know mm -hmm. this is a, a common thing of, of sort of taking yourself off the map so that you can create, but the loneliness was worth it versus the friction. Yeah, and obviously it worked for him because uh, other people who would go off to live in the woods end up not being productive because they, they think that's gonna solve their problem. I mean, I, I learned this the hard way because I had to finish a, a book early in my academic career and I decided I'd go to my parents' lake cottage for the summer and just sit there and finish it. And of course, I almost got nothing done that summer because one thing led to the other. People would stop by to visit because it was the lake and you know the lawn would need attending or the cabin itself needed fixing and I used every excuse I could possibly think of to avoid sitting down to write. Uh, this is where I worked out a lot of the the theories that are in, in my view of creativity is that summer because pressure is what causes creativity to work best. Lack of pressure actually works against creativity. So as a producer, I'd much rather have a low budget film to deal with where every single thing that you do has to be a solution to the fact that you don't have enough money to do it. So it becomes more creative. And you tell the crew that, you know, we have to have creative solutions to these issues because money is not gonna solve this. We don't have the money. And uh, of course, studio films don't have that issue. They have endless pockets and so on. But nonetheless, you can see that if there was more discipline to them, a lot of them would be better than they are. When you see a, a film that has six or seven writers listed, you know, at the beginning as screenwriters, you know that this was just caused by money. You know, they, they didn't work with writer number three long enough. They just fired him and brought in writer number four. And that was the expensive way to do it. And, um, but there's, there's a challenge in 
the pressure that comes. And time pressure is the number one pressure, more than financial even, that works on behalf of creativity. If you only have uh, a limited amount of time. I always found that I did my most creative work half an hour before committee meeting, because I hated committee meetings. And I still find that when I have to go to something that I'm not wild about going to, uh, I, I'm suddenly extremely creative an hour before that. And rather than resenting that, I, I, I schedule my, my creativity around that so that it, that's when I do it, uh, whenever I can. And I think that that's what we have to learn about our minds is how to, how to tr kind of trick them into behaving the way we want them to behave, you know, to producing what we want them to produce. So you talked about the type C personality, and then in your book, How to Escape Lifetime Security and Pursue Your Impossible Dream, A Guide to Transforming Your Career, is it chapter six, A Day in the Life of Type C? And I was wondering if we could talk about that. How, how is that day in the life? Is it a structured day? Is it? Well, it, it's different from, uh, you know, it's gonna be different for every type C, and it's gonna be different from, uh, from people who are not type Cs. And how it's different is that the type C is, has learned uh, how to arrange his day to fit his type, to fit his mind, uh, to fit his or her mind. Some people are night owls and some people are, you know, early birds. And the early bird writer is not going to write late at night because she's not comfortable writing late at night she's comfortable in the morning. So if she gets up at four o'clock, she's gonna give herself um, as much time as she has attention span for to do her writing in the morning, which is when I love to do mine because no one interrupts you from four to, to seven in the morning. Uh, but if you're a night owl, as Tolkien was, he wrote Lord of the Rings completely after one o'clock at night because he, he was so busy all the time before then and had a family and everything else. So he wrote in the middle of the night. And uh, sometimes he wrote all night and, and just went to, you know, went off to school uh, to teach without any sleep at all. But that was okay because he was doing what he loved. So his, his day would be arranged differently than, you know, the day of someone who's on a clock that's not their clock. Somebody who has to show up for a nine o'clock job is not on their own clock. And their day is going to be probably one that they're upset with most of the time. Whereas if you're, um, you know, if you're type C and you're in charge of your own life, you're gonna arrange it around the patterns that work best for your mind. And that I think is a crucial part of becoming a type C is having your own kind of day. I go to a lot, of, I go to meetings to sell the properties that we've developed and uh, I don't like going to meetings because it takes a lot of time to get there. And once you're there, there's a certain amount of wasted time. And then you do it, the thing. It's always fun, you know, even though you dreaded it. So I try to arrange my day so that I'm doing something that is very productive. Like I always say, I didn't get any work done. And my wife's telling me, what are you talking about? You went to three pitch meetings at, at, you know, at, two, at three different networks. Yeah, I know, but I don't feel like I got any work done. I mean, that's that's just your mental view of, of things, and uh, so I, I think that everyone's type, every type C day is going to be different. And what you really need to do is, if you're interested in pursuing this for yourself, is you need to 
figure out what are, is your ideal day. I mean, is it important to you to go for a walk? Is it important to you to meditate? Is it important to you to spend X time on your creative work? Uh, and is it important to you to spend X time with your family and all of those things? And you sit there and rearrange your day to make that work. Uh, that's what time management is all about. And how do you do it? You know, no matter how busy you are, there are busier people. I was reading Michelle Obama's book and nobody could be busier than the President of the United States and the First Lady of the United States, but somehow they, they made time for everything they needed to make time for, which tells you that there was time management at work. Because certainly if anybody had infinite things to do and infinite work to do, it would be those two. But if they can do it, you can do it too. I think um, Philip K. Dick loved to write at night, and he would stay up all night. And I'm not sure if some of it was maybe chemically, chemically induced, but then when he married another wife, she wanted him to write from 9 to 5. She, she said, I'm very middle class, bourgeois, I, I like these hours. And so he eventually got his own apartment, which he called the hovel, and it was dirty, and he felt that he did his best writing when, when he wanted to in this you know, sort of dirty apartment, and it just lent to what he was doing. So it's just interesting how, yeah. you know, we're, we're... The Hovel syndrome is, is interesting <laughs> because I think every creative person can relate to that. Uh, President Obama called his the hole, and it was always a room that had to be found in any house they were in where nothing could be touched. You know, he could do whatever he wanted, and usually there were papers all over the floor and everything. And it was there that he finished a book or a speech and so on. And the hovel is the same idea. And I noticed that, you know, I've always been the same way. By the weekend, my office is a complete mess. There are things all over the floor. And, and then by Monday, it's all chip shape. And when you think about that, it's nothing but the externalization of the creative process. Because the creative process is making order out of chaos. You know, St. John's Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. You know, and, and he goes on and talks about the light, let there be light, etc. So when, when the artist creates something, he is taking a bunch of little things and creating order out of them. And so, the externalized version of that is, is living in a messy place and straightening it up when, as much as you have to, whenever you have to. And if there's some external force that is forcing you to straighten it up, <clears throat> then that creative person is not in charge of their own life. And they, they can be. You, you can always find a way to do it. There's a touching short story by Doris Lessing called Two Room 19. I think that's the name of it, Two Rooms 16, maybe. <laughs> In any case, it's, it's one of her greatest short stories, and it's about a, a housewife who longed all of her life to have a room of her own. And, uh, and it was because she couldn't, she couldn't be herself in her family, and she couldn't do what she wanted to do, and she didn't feel free. And uh, I won't tell you how it ends, because it's not a fun ending, but it's a very tragic example of what happens if you don't take charge of your own creative life. Um, interestingly enough, Tolkien wrote a very introspective piece called Leaf by Niggle. Uh, strange title, but Niggle was the name of a painter uh, who had this amazing vision of a 
spectacular forest. And his vision was so clear that he could see every tree in the forest clearly, every animal in the forest, every leaf on every tree in the forest. And because he was so busy, he never got around to painting more than a single leaf. That's the way the story ends up, you know, ends up. And it's really Tolkien's agonized argument for why he had to write in the middle of the night, because he determined that he was not going to be niggle. You know, even though he wrote something like 40 books on linguistics and different languages, and of course, Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and many other great works, he felt that he had barely gotten to one tree in his forest, um, and, and only that because he wrote all night. So that that is a terrible thing to kind of carry around, is the, the belief that you can do amazing things, but you don't have time to do them. And the answer is, that's not right. You do have time. I mean, where did Michelangelo find his time? Where did Leonardo da Vinci find his time? You know, they all had the exact same number of hours that we have. And your job is to take your vision seriously and find those hours to make it happen. Or someone like Alice Munro, who when she first started out was, I guess, raising four children. And she didn't want the other housewives in the neighborhood to know that she was a writer because she thought she would get the weird label, which she ended up getting and she didn't care anyway. But um, I guess when you, you win a Nobel Prize, it doesn't takes all that away, but oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but she would do it when the, the children were napping, and if the other housewives knocked on the door, you know, she would put it all away. She didn't want people to know, but uh, so I, I realize that stigma is probably no longer today. No, um, it's it's still there. Is it? Okay. Yeah, it, it's 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 it originates in people's families, uh, and and it's it's when you, you you announce to your father or your mother that you're going to be a writer or you're going to be a circus clown or you're going to be a dancer or you're going to be an actress and uh, that is where it starts because they you know the, the normal response is well, what are you going to do for a living and uh, that haunts you there's another book, one of my books when I talk about learning uh, as you go into the creative life learning who your true friends are and learning who your friendly associates are because you lose most of your friendly associates when you make a decision to go from a, a rational life to a creative life. I once had a class, I gave a regular class at UCLA that was called uh, Keeping Your Spirits Up for Creative People. And one time there were a bunch of actresses in the class and I said, <coughs> at the beginning of the class, I said, let's go around the circle and everyone introduce themselves and tell me, um, tell me your name and where you're from. And uh, what is the worst question that you could be asked at a bar or a cocktail party in L.A., and, and how do you respond to it? And one, one lady said, you know, she was from Arkansas, and uh, her name was Joe. and the worst question that she had in L.A. was, when are you going to go back to Arkansas and work in the post office again? Right. And I said, how do you answer that? That's terrible. And she goes, usually by bursting into tears and leaving the room. And I said, well, hopefully this class will find some help for that. The next woman said her name was Jenny, and she was uh, from California. And uh, she said, and the worst question that I have is, what have you been in big lately that I've seen? And I said, yeah, that terrible question, too. She goes, and, and I said, what is your answer? And she goes, the Pacific Ocean. 
And I always love that because it, it showed that here's a creative person who has figured out how to protect her mind from the inevitable things that are going to happen in the big world. People are not born with sensitivity. They don't walk out of their homes on the way to a party going, I'm going to be particularly sensitive today. And the first thing they say to an actress they meet is, what have you been in bigs that I've seen? It's not because they're mean or that they're nasty people, but maybe they are, but it's probably because they aren't being sensitive. And you having that answer instantly bonds you with them and makes them respect you for respecting yourself enough to not take their question seriously. You don't ever have to answer any question that somebody gives you unless you feel like it. Sure. So when she answers it that way, she disarms the whole situation, whereas the first girl is not doing such a good job because she shouldn't be going to parties until she can answer that question about going back to Arkansas and working for the post office. And, and that's a, another example of protecting your mind or not protecting your mind uh, and, and having the introspection to know how to deal. And, and you were talking about like whether people react, how do people react to your deciding to be creative? You know, I always say it, it's, it's like there's this guy down the street who's been painting in his garage for the last 10 years. And, you know, when the neighbors are talking, they're talking about him as he's crazy. Sure. You know, he's a crackpot. He's been doing that for 20 years, whatever. And then one day they read in the paper that one of his paintings sold for a million dollars. And what do, they, what do they say? I always knew the guy was a genius. You know, he had to be a genius to be working that hard. But everything suddenly changes when the world accepts your creativity. But the only way you're going to get to that point is if you absolutely control what you're doing and, and believe in it yourself. And even if you don't believe in it, keep acting as though you do. In other words, you don't have to believe in things. You don't have to feel good in order to work. And you don't have to feel good in order to do good work. You can work. And normally when you work, you get rid of these feelings anyway. So this is all examples of dealing with the creative mind and how to get it to um, be your friend as opposed to be something you're scared of and don't want to take off to a cabin in the woods. Well, I noticed with The Star is Born, which is now up for an Oscar, um, we're just about a month away or so, um, the, what struck me about the film was the loneliness of the creative process and the lack of people around them when they were working on things and whether it was his drinking or whatever it was, but that it was so lonely and it was just them and their, their material. Yeah, they had handlers around them and dancers and different things, but when they were home, it was, it was very lonely. And I just thought that was very interesting. Yeah, it's a kind of loneliness that you can't really describe to people who are not part of it. And uh, so after a while, you stop trying to describe it. Um, maybe you go to a shrink to talk to the shrink about it. One of my clients is a shrink for creative people, and probably half the people in, in, the, in the Hollywood business go to him. And, uh, and they all have the same problems, having to do with the unbearable uh, heaviness of what they do and the fact that uh, it, it is a lonely process that no one understands. You know, like I'm a producer and people say, what does a producer do? And I go, I have to give a like Pacific Ocean kind of answer to that because 
it is a long conversation and nobody understands it and nobody's really that interested anyway. So it's, it's just, that's what you're dealing with in the creative world. You're trying to, to articulate things that are alien to most people who are not living creative lives. And uh, it's, it's a burden to bear, but it gets easier to bear the more, the light, the more likely you, you take it when you don't take it that heavily, when you have a dog or a cat or, you know, something that you can, that makes you feel human. If you cook, like I, I love cooking and I love playing tennis and I'm not thinking creative thoughts when I'm cooking or playing tennis. I'm just doing those things. Uh, so I think that you, you, you learn, you, you have to give yourself the chance to be with your own mind and figure it out and, and realize that, you know, you can control it. You know, I always think the creative mind has these parts to it that the artist really needs to be aware of. And, and the parts are, there's a great big bunch of it. If you imagine the mind like a big globe, there's a huge continent in the middle of it that, that I call the continent of reason. And it is all the established things in your life. It's your entire education. It's, it's your ability to tell time and how many languages you can tell time. It's even language, because if you weren't on that continent, you wouldn't need a language, right? If you weren't communicating with millions of people, you wouldn't need languages. So everything that's orderly is from that continent of reason. And then there's these islands all over the place that are each individual, and they don't have anything to do with the continent. And on those islands, strange things can happen. Those are the I call the visionary islands of the mind, and the most most people are trained uh, as they're growing up when they're when their parents talk them out of being a painter and and talk them into being a dentist, you know, or talk them out of being a ballerina and talk them into being a teller at the bank. You know, those people are trained to be members of the continent, to be good members of the society that is the continent of reason, where everything is orderly, where you show up at nine o'clock, you don't show up at 9.05. You know, if you show up at quarter to nine, that's good, but quarter after nine, that's the end of the job. So that, those people are raised that way, and the artist refuses to be raised that way. He wants to be, he wants to visit all these islands, and he wants to somehow do something with those islands, and eventually he wants to introduce those islands to the continent because it takes stuff from the continent like language in order to write a story it takes stuff from the continent like you know color and lines and framing to be a painter and if you don't know those basic you know con conventions you can't be a painter but you, so you, you learn them, but you, your goal as an artist is to make them different than anything that's ever been on the continent before, right? And eventually, if you succeed, and just is jumping way ahead, then what you've done is now a part of the continent, if you're su succeeded. And, and I'll ne I've never heard that put more eloquently than in a brilliant little book called Picasso by Gertrude Stein that everybody artistic should read. But one of the things she says in there is, every, everybody thought that what Pablo was seeing was different 
but he was only seeing what he was seeing. He was not seeing what anyone else was seeing. He was just seeing what he was seeing. And after a while, he started painting what he was seeing and only what he was seeing. And before long, suddenly we were seeing what he was seeing. And, and that kind of explains the whole process by which an original vision gets translated into a classic. You know, Picasso is now considered a classic painter in terms of the history of art, and, and only because he saw things differently and, and had the courage and strength to convey his vision. And then finally, his vision started catching on because somebody bought a napkin for a million dollars, you know, and uh, he was no longer the crazy painter, which he was absolutely before that first cultural breakthrough, that commercial breakthrough. And uh, th that's, that's part of the excitement of it, is to see how artists change culture by sticking to their eccentric, sort of anti-cultural stance. Yeah, we're, we're talking about um, the artist is, is, is anti-cultural in the beginning because he's pursuing his own private vision. And when his private vision begins to be accepted by the larger culture, then he becomes an established artist. And that sounds good to the persons who live on the continent of reason, but to the artist, that becomes dangerous and, and, and fraught with peril because he was never interested in being like the people on the continent. And now he is one of those people so what does he do? He goes through periods if he's Picasso. You know, he starts writing different kinds of books if he's a writer. Uh, and his publishers don't like that because they like him to write thrillers because they, they're part of the continent of reason. And they have, the continent of reason invented pigeonholes and niches. You know, find your niche, young man. Someone once told me, find your niche. Because I was trying to do a magazine about dreams and the arts and he was the editor of Psychology Today. And uh, that word niche is the continent telling you, you're too far out there, you know, that's not gonna work. And okay, well we stubbornly continued, my editor, my co-editor and I, and, and we created a magazine that lasted for 10 years, and published in New York and so on, but only because we ignored him telling us to find the niche. But when we found that niche, you know, we have to think of like, what are we gonna do next? And that's what Picasso has to think about. So he switches to his blue period and switches to his cubist period and so on, uh, just because he's now competing with himself. You know, his part of the culture is now earlier Picasso. And that is a tremendous burden for the successful artist to bear. Think about Stravinsky, whose greatest works were his first works. But the guy lived to be, you know, 90 years old. But the Rite of Spring and, and uh, Petrushka and the Firebird Suite were all written when he was much younger. So how does a guy like that live <laughs> through the next 40 years with great difficulty and experimentation and, and switching from composing to conducting and lots of other things? He wasn't like he didn't have a worthwhile life, but he was always nagged and haunted by the fact that his Art was, in a sense, premature when it comes to healthy, happy, you know, mental development. 
Uh, this is the, kind of the issues that artists deal with, and it's why a lot of people are telling you, don't do that. Just work for the post office. You know, work in a secure position. Didn't work for Bukowski. No, it didn't. He was a good friend when he was around, and uh, I, he talked about hovels and chaos. I once took my, my five-year-old daughter to his house to pick up something because he was speaking in a poetry series at Occidental College that I was in charge of. And <coughs> she walked into the house and she shouted at the top of her voice, Dad, this is the filthiest house I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and it's true. There was toilet paper on the floor. There were dirty dishes all over the floor. It was a mess. But, you know, he wrote incredible poems that moved everybody. When I went to Italy as a Fulbright professor, I was surprised to learn that rather than Wallace Stevens and Hemingway, all of which I was prepared to teach in Melville, they only wanted to hear about Bukowski. His books were translated into uh, Italian, all of them, and uh, he was, you know, he was a mess. Uh, and, and he was, his personal life was, was a mess, and uh, he kind of liked it that way. He never ran out of material to write. And he's one of the few who was able to sustain a long career without feeling uh, trapped by his previous career. He was happy kind of doing what he was doing over and over again. I was talking about publishers wanting a writer to constantly do thrillers because that's where his niche is and that's where he should can do, do thrillers. But the writer goes, no, I want to write mysteries now. I want to write romance. The publishers are not interested. Wait a minute, we've made $6 million out of you as a thriller writer and I don't know if you know, you could even speak to the romance audience. Well, I'd like to try. Well, okay, then we're gonna have to use a different name. So a typical response is for an artist, even like Agatha Christie, to have four or five pen names and write under many names, Stephen King, for example, uh, because they wanna write different things. They don't wanna be uh, repetitive and force their art into a mold that is part of the continent of reason. And um, that's, I've always seen that those are the two big things going on in the artist's mind, but then there's a third thing, which I call the managing editor, which is the part of the mind that sees this whole thing. It's similar to you know meditators telling you that you there's the third eye, there's the watcher that you have to develop to see your thinking and to realize that it's not you, that there's more to you than just the thinking. Well, that's kind of what we talk about in one of my books. The managing editor is the one who says, I've got to negotiate a deal between the continent and the islands so that we can actually get this book done. Because we need things from the continent like time, which the continent's in charge of, because on the islands there is no time. Things happen all in at once and there is no beginning, middle, and end. It just everything happens at once. But on the continent, that that's not allowed. Things have to have a beginning, a middle, and end in that order. Unlike the Italian director who said that a movie didn't have to have a beginning, middle, did have to have a beginning, middle, end, but not necessarily in that order. He was giving an island response to a continent question. And the question was, does a movie have to have a beginning, middle, and end? He goes, yes, but not in that order. And that's a the managing editor is the part of your mind that sees this and goes, okay, we're going to negotiate. If you say I'm going to go to this cabin and write this book, no matter how long, you know, how much it takes, I'm going to stay there until it's done. The continent freaks out 
because it's going, well, I'm going to starve to death. Like what's going to happen if you never finish the book? What's going to happen? So, but, but the managing editor works out a deal and goes, no, we're only going to do th two hours a day, three hours a day, and then we're only going to do it for 10 weeks. And at the end of that, with that many hours, we're going to be done. And here's the path. So it could play. So the continent is allowed to relax because this intervening force has told the crazy islands that wants to write this book, you guys can come out and do this, but you can only you're going to have this much time and blah 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 within this compartment. And that's that's what I think makes a sane uh, artist as opposed to someone who's not sane is working out deals like that with themselves. Maybe not so formally, but that that's what they they do. They make bargains to keep their art going. Well, in the case of Bukowski, the, the sort of slavery of his nine to five job, if you want to call it that, was the impetus for a lot of his stories. And it helped fuel him and it helped give him that chip on his shoulder and sort of put a voice to what so many people felt. Yeah. So it, it's almost as if it worked for him. Yeah. And, and Wallace Stevens, who was one of my favorite American poets, uh, and, and oddly similar to Bukowski, in a very interesting ways, uh, was selling insurance all of his life. He was writing his greatest poem like Sunday morning on a train commuting from Hartford to New Haven, uh, wearing a three-piece suit because he was an insurance salesman. And uh, that's what he had to do. And T.S. Eliot was working as a bank teller uh, when he was writing The Wasteland. Um, so yeah, ordinary jobs can be, uh, can be used to spark creativity and the artist uh, like Bukowski in his later years found himself more and more troubled when he had an unstructured life and didn't have to you know go anywhere. Last time we visited with you it was before the release of The Meg I believe last summer. How has the release of the film and its success impacted your life Ken? Well it's uh, you know it, it, one answer would be not at all um, but that would not really be a good answer, a fun, you know, a fun answer. Uh, the real answer is that it, it was disconcerting to be validated for something that I believed 22 years ago um, and, and that uh, I got a lot of other people to believe 22 years ago, including Doubleday to the tune of two million dollars and Disney to the tune of a million and New Line to the tune of a million plus and so on. Uh, and then it didn't happen. And uh, suddenly, all these years later, it happens and people go, you, you must feel good to be corroborated. And I, I said, yes, I do. But the truth is, it taught me the most important lesson of all, which uh, I wrote into an essay called The Waiting Room. Uh, if I had been waiting for the Meg to happen, or for any movie that I started 20 years ago to happen, uh, I probably would be miserable, if not suicidal. But um, what you do in the waiting room is you do something else. That, that's how you manage your time. When, when you're waiting for something, uh, that can be annoying and, and a burden. And uh, the, what you have to do is other things. So what I did was 50 other things. As a result, 30 movies have happened and hundreds of books and a new publishing company and lots of other things. And yes, it's satisfying to see that the world uh, endorses what Steve Elton and I believed in 22 years ago, that this was you know, a hugely popular 
subject for a story. And all the way along, brave people, especially Bill Avery, who brought it home, uh, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, et cetera, other producers, um, they made it happen too. But it just, I guess what it shows, among other things, is that don't waste time hoping for something to happen. Do your work and then put it out in the world and let the world take care of it. That's one thing. And then uh, part of it is to trust your, the work that happened. When you, know, when you create this baby, the Meg in this case, if it's a good baby, it will survive and it will show its muscles when the time comes. Uh, maybe it's been in hiding for all these years, but suddenly it comes out and everybody knows it. That's great. But what that tells the artist, I think, is to focus on what's at hand, what's in your workshop right now and do it well. And then don't worry about things you can't control. Focus on what you can control. And I guess that's my main feeling about it, is that we did a lot of work on the Meg at the beginning. We created its shape, and it finally came out, and it did great. And am I surprised? No. I'm pleased. Um, but I'm not surprised, because I always believed it. But I am so glad I didn't hang my own personal psychology on it. Because if I had done that, I'd been, you know, locked up by now. Like, like, like myself, Steve went on to write eight more books on different subjects too, um, and built a, another career around uh, his talent. And he'll continue doing that. He's learned that lesson too. That uh, it's, was it disappointing that it didn't come out back then? Well, it felt like it at the time, but in retrospect. Things are meant to be. And I always say to, to writers that I manage that uh, every project has its own clock. And the only problem is you can't see the clock. So what you do is you put in the works the best you can, and then you screw the screwdriver, you know, the screws on the cover and send it out into the world and wish it well and turn to your next project, which hopefully you've done before you finish this what project. And uh, that's, what, that's what the creator does. They keep working on new projects. So this world didn't turn out perfectly. God creates another world. Uh, maybe it's better. How often do you create? Do I create? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm always involved in uh, at least two creative projects. Uh, I've just finished three screenplays in the last 12 months. and one book that was already published and a book that's about to be published and I'm always I've never run out of creative things to do uh, you know that's what keeps me going is that creative juice and it's why I I'm drawn to helping other people with that creative juice because I understand it having spent my lifetime living it and kind of analyzing it if you could be remembered for one quote, what would it be? Your own quote. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I don't know. I, I see my quotes on the internet now and I, I go, well, that's good that I said that. That's, <laughs> that's good. I mean, I, I, I think that I would probably hope to be remembered for go for it and never give up. But neither of those are original. My mother is the one who told me go for it all the time and never give up, you know, was Churchill. Uh, but I think those are the 
things that make a, a you know a creative writer uh, sane is sticking to those two principles, uh, and that not don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it or you shouldn't do it, um, or even you shouldn't do it this way, because if you have a clear vision of where you're going, uh, you should stick to that vision until you can't anymore. Or just do it, but Nike has Yeah, has just do one. it. You know, Similar. You know, it's, it's funny how all these, these slogans, I mean, are, are universal. They're not just about the creative world. They're, you know, athletes are extremely creative. I mean, people who break records are breaking them because of their creativity and because they too have understood their mind and they too have this kind of managing editor inside the mind that knows how to hold off the world on one side and their vision of it on another side. Uh, people say this particular high jump record can't be broken, but they believe it can. And maybe they believe it because they had a dream that they did it, or maybe they believe it because they calculated, you know, that if this and if that, then I could do it. And maybe they just believe out of sheer stubbornness but there's only one way to test a belief in the creative world, and that is to do it, to just do it. Uh, and, and every time, it's interesting, people say this three-minute mile couldn't be run, you know, this two-minute mile, whatever. But when somebody breaks a record like that, within the next 12 months, it is matched or broken by three other people. What does that tell you? It tells you that the role of creativity in human life is to keep us moving forward <coughs> as a species. It's the creative people who have the vision to say, this could be done that hasn't been done before. This could be done better. This could be done different. And uh, we listen to that and we either believe it or we don't believe it. But at the end of the day, if it works, then suddenly everybody's doing it. And, and the continent of reason is reshaped by this eccentric little island vision that, that came out of the blue and suddenly people believe it. I mean, nobody would have known what to make of, you know, tweets or Instagram or Facebook just a few years ago. Okay. 2008, I think, is when a lot of this really began or earlier, slightly earlier, 2006. And now it's hard to imagine the world without it. And that's how quickly the continent gets changed by a creative change. You know, they people looking at art after Picasso can no longer see things the same way because he came along and changed our way of seeing. And uh, that, that's the beauty of being involved in the creative world. I was reading that a high school journalism teacher was teaching her students how to decipher tweets and fake news, and that's something that five years ago we, we wouldn't have even been having that conversation. So. Yeah, I have a... A really strange theory about this whole thing about fake news <clears throat> is that, I don't even know how to say this because uh, I, I think Trump is, is kind of a breakthrough cultural character. I, I don't have any uh, fond feelings for him, and I could go on and on about that, but he is an eccentric, creative person. He is the most uh, amazing producer I've ever seen uh, in my life, and I can't even imagine one more powerful than he is. Uh, a few years ago, people around the world didn't even know who he was. 
Uh, people in New York knew who he was, but mostly in a negative way. Uh, but in today's world, whether you're in Thailand like I was a few weeks ago, or whether you're in an island off the coast of Samoa, or in <laughs> Latvia, or Estonia, or Albania, you can't pick up a paper that doesn't have the word Trump in it. And his ability to get the media to do what he wants them to do is almost infinite. Uh, it's astonishing. And people say, well, he's a liar. But the more I hear that over the last few years, the more I start thinking what's really going on, and my wife would kill me for saying this, uh, is that he is changing or maybe awakening us to our strange views of truth. Because I don't think he knows this. I don't think it's conscious on his part. But he instinctively knows that truth is completely relative. And if a society decides that it's not relative, then that is a social decision. It's like the continent of reasoning saying, we're going to agree that this is true. But he's saying, whatever is true, the only thing that's true is what I'm saying at the moment. And that's the way I look at it. It's true. And he's got a lot of people who believe that, even though some of it sounds just plain crazy. But isn't that the way creative people always sound at the beginning? So I'm, I'm afraid uh, and kind of excited about the fact that we may be going into a whole new era of post-truth uh, era. I mean, no one ever quite answered Pilate's question that he asked 2,000 years ago, what is truth? Uh, but I think the, the world of Trump is a world that is getting closer to answering that than we've ever been before. Because what if we just decide that to dispense with the concept of truth? Uh, we, a lot of things would change, but they're already changing because of him. And uh, I think it's a very strange and troubling situation, but it's also kind of exhilarating because maybe it's time that we, we do have a different view of of what truth is, and maybe we can learn something from the whole thing. So I don't know if this has anything to do with our, you know, with our interview, but. Well, if we look at, at, at writing and, and fake news, I mean, if you look at, is it Randolph Hearst or it, Rand, yeah. Randolph Hearst, I, I think he would stage different things back in the day where, you know, a woman would faint on the street and then they would write about it and it was, it was part of just generating content. The thing is we didn't have the internet back then. So it wouldn't spread as fast and it couldn't create chaos in other countries or here. And then it turns no. out it's not even Well, when, when you look at what's happened here, um, the American people decided with their votes um, one way or the other. I mean, I know it was the Electoral College, not the popular vote. But a lot of Americans voted for a reality show over somebody who was just a little too truthful or whatever, little too logical, little too much of the continent of reason, uh, they voted for the most entertaining of the two characters. So they voted for entertainment, basically. And, and that's scary. I mean, it's all these other actors are talking about running, and some of them already have run, and actresses, etc. And uh, the blurring of politics and entertainment is very dangerous, but what if it changes the world? 
And what if it changes the world for not only the worse, but what if it changes it for the better? You know, what if a, an enlightened guy like George Clooney becomes president? Oh, that'd be nice. And he gets elected because he's George Clooney. Gets elected because he's an entertainer. You know, what about, what if a guy named like Ronald Reagan became president? <laughs> he was a great communicator though. Yeah, well he was a great <laughs> actor, great mm -hmm. communicator. You know, he didn't need to write his lines. You know, he, he knew how to deliver his lines. So I think all of that is very interesting. And it's, it's about, it all is about how the creative worlds intertwine with our daily existence. You know, and, and you, watch, you watch the broadcasters. And I try to watch Fox News once in a while. And I find it very difficult to watch it. But then when I come back to watch CNN or MSNBC, I realize they must find, you know, I understand how they feel that's hard to watch because both sides of the coin are manipulating views of reality to, to get messages across. And that's what writing is all about. Isn't that what creativity is all about? Like when a painter paints something like Rothberg, who would have thought you could have painted a painting with no figures in it at all, just color. And um, that's, the world we're going through. So it's, it's kind of like we're on yet another frontier of, of the human mind's evolution. And uh, we'll see what happens from it. Uh, I'm afraid that certain things are going to be gone for good after this presidency. Uh, we may not ever get um, any candidate who isn't a visionary in one way or the other. And you know, Trump is a visionary even if you think his vision is dark. He clearly is a visionary. He doesn't like the way things are, and he's trying to break them up. And only when things are break, broken up can they be put back together again. So he's a spoiler. And uh, the world is, you know, history is filled with spoilers. And huge catastrophes and huge changes for the better have occurred because of spoilers. And uh, who knows where it's going, but I think it's interesting that the you know, that the entertainment world being mixed with the rea world of reality is going to make it much more challenging. And I think the internet is largely responsible for that because, you know, the first thing, if you, you have a certain medical condition, you instantly Google and you, first thing you read, you know, you go, oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to die or I'm going to die in this really bizarre way. And then you read something else that makes it look like everybody has this problem and it's not a big issue. And then you keep reading and you get more and more, you know, confused. And you wait, you go, wait a minute, this isn't making sense. Like everything is out there and how do you organize it? And faced with that, you know, you are facing the issue of creativity because the creator is the guy who, you know, or the girl who <laughs> looks at things and goes, this whole thing's a mess. I'm going to make something spectacular out of it. I'm going to make sense out of it. And I think that's why the world is getting more, you know, more and more interesting. Where it's going, I don't know. Uh, you know, but it's, it, it's going to be interesting. During the, the McCarthy era, you know, many people's lives were disrupted and many people were silenced and lived in fear. And I don't know if we're in a, a, a sort of a parallel time. It's, it's not the same in terms of labeling someone a communist, but it, it seems as if it's, there's, there's some similarities there and having to be quiet about certain things and 
With the McCarthy era, how did you see the evolution of film change and story? Well, because we were on the subject of Trump, and I'd like to say something about the McCarthy era and how it's different from our era, because I think that the difference is during the McCarthy era, everyone was afraid of McCarthy. Apparently, the entire Congress was afraid of him until they finally turned on him, but they were afraid of him. And so was the entertainment business. And so was, uh, were the people of the country. They were, they were all more or less controlled by him uh, for a while. And even the media was afraid of him because he didn't want, they didn't want him to turn on them. And that's a huge difference because in today's world, the media is not afraid you know, of Trump or people who support Trump. The media is attacking him uh, as much as they are supporting him. There's different media supporting him, others attacking him. And I think that's a healthier environment, even though it's, it is a crazy environment. I mean, we are becoming crazier and crazier. But if you can hang on to your mental you know, <coughs> alacrity through all of this, uh, it's a very uh, stimulating time, and it's a very uh, evolutionary time where we see where things go with this. Because, you know, his attacks on the media have caused the media to say, well, we're not going to stop doing what we're doing. Whereas when McCarthy was attacking the media, the media was being coerced into silence some of the time. And that, that has not happened. Uh, which means that the, 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 the kind of wall between government and the people through which media operates uh, has just about disappeared in the sense that no one feels that the governors, you know, the, the people in the legislature and the White House and the Supreme Court are separated from us by this wall of respect that, that they used to be separated by, uh, this unbreachable wall. The media has gotten so powerful, partly because of the internet and, and the cell phones and all of that, that that wall is almost non-existent now. And because of that, it's, it's going to cause evolution in this country and, uh, and around the world. It's already causing you know, evolution. <coughs> we just can't define yet where it's going to go. Uh, so I think it's fascinating. And I'm sorry that didn't answer your question exactly about McCarthy, but... So when, when, when McCarthy was, I guess he was ousted, I mean, how did it, how did it end? I think that the, that the Senate finally got tired of him and realized how dangerous he was and realized how... See, the problem was he was saying, you know, he was the head of the House Un-American Activities, so the House, House Un-American Activities Committee, you know, and if you attack him, you're un-American. But after a while, people started seeing the damage he was doing by having the power to call anybody un-American. And I think that he just was pulled down by his own, uh, he went too far and he was pulled down by his own momentum. And, and people just got fed up with him. And they saw too many people victimized by what he did. And uh, so I think it was a natural evolution, but it was certainly a painful one. And so those who were blacklisted, how did their careers then turn out once was, well, they, they were out of it until, you know, after he was no longer in power. And then they were sort of creeping back into the picture 
but they were never fully exonerated until after I think everybody was dead, you know, because that's how long it takes for bureaucracies to change. You know, whether the bureaucracy is the Academy of Motion Pictures or whether it's the U.S. government, it's still a bureaucracy. And it takes it a while to make sure the coast's clear and make some changes. And uh, so I think we're, we're in very interesting times and creative people should be, you know, just sucking up all the, all, the all the facts from every direction to try to mold it into something that makes sense. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Trump era is that I can't imagine people writing um, a story about it, you know, about writing a satire about Washington anymore because it is larger than life already. And that's because an entertainer took over. You know, an entertainer is running the picture, you know, running the, the show. And uh, he, he knows how to make himself bigger than life. All he has to do is say a new crazy thing the next day. You know, we have complete peace with North Korea. Uh, everything is settled. Everything is cool. And Iran is, you know, building nuclear weapons. And suddenly the fact what was happening yesterday with his being accused of this and that people, it's not on people's mind because the media is controlled by him saying this new thing and they drop the old thing. They don't drop it completely, but it goes down the shelf to where it's not as important. And because of that, it's very hard to write about him in any way that isn't. I mean, I find myself, much as I love The New Yorker, find, getting bored writing, reading the anti-Trump stories because what else can you say? What else can you say? It's, it, it is a reality show that we're all kind of glued to, but um, it's entertainment. And unfortunately or unfortunately, it is changing the shape of American life. Uh, and where it goes is up to the people of the United States. Like, what are we going to do at the next election? And, you know, at this last election, people decided they wanted a change, but not as big a change as could have happened. Well, then you throw the Cambridge Analytica monkey wrench. And if, if we think that that is true, then how, easy, how easily led are we? If, if all that is true, if we were somehow blindsided by messages and people knowing our sort of emotional pulls and then trying to play to that. And how, what's the question? I'm not sure there's a question. It's just a statement. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's, it's already happening because Facebook already knows all that stuff. Google already knows it all. I mean, Google knows when you've got a cold because you, you know, you, you Google what's the best cure for a cold today. And, and they know that you've got a cold. In fact, there's a study that shown that they can predict how many people in a city like Chicago have a cold right now, simply by what people Google. And they keep track of it. They keep track of it all, mostly with our permission. Well, there's voice-activated ads as well. Yeah. So you could be talking about kitty litter, and then the next thing you know, you're bombarded with ads for, for you know, cat products. Yeah, and it's now it's global, which is interesting. I mean, I, we just got back from Japan and Thailand, and suddenly I'm getting ads from Thailand and Japan, and, and I don't know why. I guess, I guess I went on the internet in those countries, right? So now I'm, you know, they're bombarding me with uh, spam. And although that's very annoying, it's also very interesting and exciting to think that we are really becoming that global that 
uh, and that wired into one big global brain. You know, there years ago, a, a Jesuit philosopher named Teilhard de Chardin wrote a book called The Omega Point. And in it, he predicted that human race was heading for the Omega Point. And that point, he said, was uh, a point when we are omnipresent, we are omniscient, and therefore we are omnipowerful, all-powerful, which are the three characteristics that Thomas Aquinas defined as the characteristics of God. And omniscience means we know everything that's going on. Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're pretty dang close, right? Because people are sending us videos from South Sea Islands and from Sakhalin, north of Russia, and from the South Pole and the North Pole. And we're omnipresent because we can be in the streets of Iran during a revolution. You know, we can be in the Tiananmen Square, et cetera. And, and power comes directly from that. Look at this girl who escaped Saudi Arabia and went to a hotel room when she was about to be taken into custody by the country she was in and just tweeted until the country was forced to, to take her to a safe place and to avoid returning her to Saudi Arabia. This, was, this is power. And she had this power in her hand and she knew how to use this power. And, and this will become more and more frequent. I mean, it is already everywhere, but next generation will have it down to a complete science of how to use this power to change the world. And, uh, you know, Teilhard de Chardin was excommunicated by the Catholic Church because of this book, because he was basically saying that we were evolving toward godhood. That, after all, why wouldn't we be doing that, since it says in Genesis that God created us in his image and likeness? So if that's true, why wouldn't we be evolving toward being like him or her, right? Why not? And uh, the church excommunicated him because that was not a good thing to say as far as they were concerned. But of course, he's now massively respected even in the Vatican for his predictions. He wrote all of this in 1910 before, before radio had taken off, but television was, you know, just a an ion in the mind of somebody and uh, social networking and all of that was not yet conceived, but he predicted it all. He predicted that all people would be in simultaneous communication with all other people and that the world would be, would form a single consciousness. And uh, the interesting thing about how creativity fits into a global consciousness is that if creativity is not nurtured, uh, that global consciousness will have no form other than what, what the media give it. And the media are completely untrustworthy for a single reason. Their attention span is microscopic. It changes on a whim. Somebody important dies, and suddenly we're no longer worried about this case going through the Supreme Court. For three days, you know, we cover McCain's funeral. And uh, that's a little strange when you think about it, when you think about reality, like what's more important, this particular bill that means something for millions of people or watching every moment of a senator's funeral or a president's funeral, well, that is a me media decision is not based on any deep human reality. It's based on sponsorship. It's based on 
what they can get people to pay them money to run, and that's what they do. So if it wasn't for the creative people, we wouldn't have you know, a source that wasn't based on nothing but immediate uh, you know, feedback of, of what we need to keep this channel open, to keep CBS going. We have to do this programming and not this programming. Whereas the creative person is like, what? It's got nothing to do with me. You know, this person is involved in making statues out of paper and you know, probably doesn't even know what's going on in the world half the time. So creativity is more important than ever was because it's the different part of us. It's the part that maybe foresees the future and gives us a better future to go to, toward or a worse one because it does, <coughs> it does us a huge service when it gives us a dystopian view of the future because maybe that will warn us from not going in that direction. I remember reviewing some of uh, science fiction books years ago for the LA Times and some of them were predicting the, 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 you know, the weather changes that we're going through now and what could happen to the world. And uh, I like to think that a lot of the legislation that's occurred over the last 30 years was planted by some of these creative visionaries saying this could happen. Uh, and you know why people can say it's not happening is simply because they don't, a lot of people don't understand the importance of truth. And that's, that's what I think we're drifting into is a world where truth, imagine if the media were in charge of truth because everybody has an opposite view of it. I mean, one of the things that's most annoying in today's world is watching a panel of people arguing on television because they're not listening to each other and they're all making interesting points but there's no dialogue, you know, there's no exchange, there's no move forward from this conversation, which is what dialogue used to mean two things coming together for the purpose of moving forward. And we're not living in that world right now except in the creative path when a novel is written or a, a great painting is unveiled or a statue is unveiled that makes us look at everything differently. What are three rules that someone needs to know about screenwriting? Uh, well, three rules. I mean, that's just uh, an arbitrary number, but let's, let's go with it. Uh, I think the first thing that a screenwriter needs to know is uh, everything has to be connected to everything else. Uh, that's the biggest difference between a screenplay and a novel in my mind is that uh, in a novel you can get away with saying something on page one that doesn't connect directly to something on page 158 and so on. But anything you say in a screenplay has to connect to everything else you say in a screenplay. If it doesn't, the audience is going to go, you know what I don't get is why that guy was wearing a red baseball cap in the first scene and then in the fourth scene he was wearing a blue baseball cap. And then after that he wasn't wearing a baseball cap. Honest to God, that's the kind of thing that people say when they're having a drink or coffee after a movie, right? So every single thing has to connect with everything else. It, it's much more challenging because it's almost like building a building where if one thing isn't connected properly, the whole building could collapse. So I think that's the first thing a screenwriter has to know. And I think the second thing is screenwriters should know is that <clears throat> chronological order and logical order and psychological order have absolutely nothing to do with it. The only thing that matters is dramatic order. That, that's all the audience cares about. If you hook us properly, 
it doesn't matter where we go in the story after that hook because we'll figure it out. We'll be so hooked that we will figure it out. You don't have to even say 10 years later or five years earlier or whatever. You can help to say that maybe, but you don't have to because we're not stupid, you know, and that's the third thing. The audience is the main character in the story, not the characters. And pleasing the audience is what made the great directors, what makes them great, is they know what the audience is waiting for. Um, in The Birds, you know, by one of my favorite examples, Alfred Hitchcock um, has, uh, what's her name, Tippi Hedren, walking up the creaky wooden steps to the attic because she hears a noise in the attic. And <clears throat> she's wearing underwear because women are always wearing underwear in the last scenes of, you know, usually white underwear. Right. The last scenes of a horror film like Sigourney Weaver and Alien. <laughs> um, so... She's going up there despite the fact that she's locked in this house alone because she's afraid of the birds who have like tried to get in through the windows, whose beaks, you know, come through the windows. So why in the world would she go up those steps? You know, she, why would she do that? So if you start thinking about character logic or, you know, psychological order, you don't get the whole thing. You know, wh what is wrong with her? This is what you're thinking. You, the audience, as you're watching this. And she gets halfway up the steps, and the noise gets worse. And she stops and listens to the noise. And why is she stopping? Well, there's a real good reason she's stopping. She's stopping because we need time. The audience needs time to catch up with the story. Because we need to remind ourselves we need to first say all these things about how stupid she is and why isn't she wearing clothes and why doesn't she test the flashlight that she got from behind the couch. She doesn't even turn it on. She's just got it. And of course, at the top of the steps, it's not going to work. But that's typical. And we're going through all this in our heads. But when she stops on the last step before she goes to the door, we're suddenly, all of our inner dialogue has stopped. And we're going, okay, actually, I paid $22 to get you know, scared out of my mind. And that's where we are now. She's going to open the door, and I'm going to be scared. And when you're ready for that, then she can open the door. But a person who didn't understand that the audience is the most important character in the story would have her walk up the steps, would maybe have her test the flashlight, would have a whole different way of doing it. But everything that a good director does is based on the audience not based on the characters or, or what happens logically in the next order. It's based on what the audience is paid for. What are you here for? And am I going to lose you or not? Because on that middle step where she stops, you want to leave the theater? You know, I, this is the last time I've gone one of these stupid movies. It's really, but okay, get up and leave. But if you're still there, then she goes up another couple steps. Because he knows exactly what's going through your mind, and his job is to get you to that point where your mind is blank and you're just waiting to be scared because that's what you paid for. And that's what I mean by, you know, the, the, it's called the, log the psychology of the audience. That is the most important part of, I think, screenwriting is knowing that. Like, what does the audience want to see here? Not what, not what do I have to do first and <clears throat> what do I have to expose first? What kind of exposition do I need? It's like, how can I grab the audience by the throat and, and never let 
you know, let go of it. What's the formula for writing a great story? I think that the, the, a great story starts with finding a, a character in a strange situation and working that character out of that situation. And uh, Faulkner said that that's the way his novel started, is that a, a character haunted him. And he allowed it to haunt him uh, until he'd answered, until, until questions started coming up. And he gave the example of, you know, a novel I wrote once started with a girl sitting in a tree with muddy underpants and her knees were bruised and she's looking in the window of the house from the tree and she's crying. And he said, so I started asking questions about it, like, why were her knees bruised? Well, no, why were her knees not bruised? They were not bruised. And it's because she climbed this tree since she was little and didn't have any problem climbing the tree. But why were her pants dirty? Well, because her brother pushed her in the creek and that's why she ran home. And why was she looking in the window? Because she was told not to come in the house. What was she looking at in the window? Well, it was the funeral of her grandfather and so on. And, and when he had all those questions asked, he could then answer those questions. And the, the, the thing about Faulkner that kind of illustrates my view of creativity is that he didn't write this down. You know, I always say that if you trust your mind, the story will form itself in your mind. The minute you start writing it down, you're interfering with your mind because you're now dealing with pieces of paper and we start feeling possessive about pieces of paper and we want to do something with them. We want to put them in order. But what if one of these pieces of paper isn't a good one at all? Well, he'll forget that. He'll forget the thing about her knees, you know, for example, if that's not a good one. But he leaves it all in his mind because that way it's free to form almost like an embryo any way it wants to form. And once it's fully formed, then you sit down and write it out. Um, I always said people will never have writer's block at all if they simply never sit down to write until they know, until they know what they're going to write when they sit down. And if you know that in advance, then you just start dashing it out. That's why you're, you limit your time, 45 minutes, an hour. And at the end of it, you can't wait to write more. Perfect. Now go to tomorrow and do it then because that energy will be there already. Whereas if you sort of run out of things to write, you've misused your time management, you know? So I think that that's how a story starts is by some character that haunts you until you have to write about it. And then you go and apply all the other rules about storytelling on top of that. But basically it starts with a character. And no matter how great a writer you are, if you don't have a, an intriguing character at the heart of it, uh, it doesn't matter because you're not gonna hold your reader. You're not gonna hold your audience. The audience is, wants to see people. What's your process for developing characters? How do you go about it? Well, a character kind of develops itself and what you need to, so basically what you do when you're dealing with that is you're kind of like a checklist. Uh, rather than you're developing the character, you let develop it, the character develop himself, but you, you say, you know, what, she has to have the, the following thing. She has to have, what's her problem, you know, for example. Is that clear? Because if that's not clear, your story's not going to hook the audience. Um, and 
what's her, you know, what's her problem interfering with? I call this mission in life. Like usually it's her motivation in the story, her problem is interfering with her mission in life. You know, she's somebody who wants to become a nurse, but um, something violent happens in the opening scene that seems to uh, make her, if you want to save this person, you have to do something violent back. <coughs> and therefore her motivation, if she's going to save this person, interferes with her mission. Those are two kind of, part of parts of the checklist. And um, you go on to talk about how does she change? This is called her arc. You know, what is the arc of her change? How is she different at the end of the story? Because a lot of times we are covering stories, you know, that are submitted to us and we go, well, you know, the characters don't change. She's exactly the way she was at the end as she is at the beginning. So why do we, we, we don't get off on that. You know, we don't, we're not satisfied by a story where the characters don't change. So these are kinds of checklists that you apply to characters once you get, get them going, starting with that intriguing situation and then adding along the way to, uh, you know, by, by just checking them against traditional characters that work well. Do you think the notion of the anti-hero has become stronger in our culture now? Yeah, I think that, you know, the anti-hero has been around for a hundred years or more. Um, maybe longer than that, actually. Maybe all the way back to the Odyssey. Because maybe Ulysses is kind of a, an anti-hero. He's, uh, most of the time he's lying. And he'll avoid a fight by telling the story that disarms the fight although he gets in a few fights, but nonetheless, most of the time, <laughs> he's kind of an anti-hero that way. Uh, because his purpose is, his mission, you know, is to get home. And it's not to just defeat this person, defeat this person. So he chooses his battles. And I think an anti-hero has been with us forever, and it will be. I mean, character is in, you know, in a lot of TV series, like Breaking Bad, you know, definitely an anti-hero, right, in Ozarks. I mean, I think that anti-heroes are all around us, and th one of the things that kind of we don't notice is that over the years, the audience starts preferring anti-heroes on one, you know, one part of the audience anyway, prefers them to heroes. And they are therefore <coughs> so familiar to us that we, we don't even notice that they're anti-heroes anymore. Uh, the other part of the audience, I guess the younger part, that's interesting too, because it is, I think, a younger need it prefers heroes over overt heroes, Iron Man and, you know, Spider-Man and all of that. But I think as people get older and more experienced uh, of the complications of life, they start realizing that uh, what's more interesting to them is an ordinary woman, you know, working at the post office becomes a hero um, against her will because she she doesn't have a better choice uh, and that a lot of people can relate to you know, I think the older you get the more you can relate to that um, it's easier to relate to heroes when you're younger and still think you can conquer the world uh, so I, I think there's you know ample room for both and one of the things that people don't think about is the fact that we have so many channels now, so many ways in which stories get to us in today's world. 
that um, we are uh, hugely sensitive to little story cues that make us instantly decide whether we want to see a story or not. You know, take, take the remote that allows you to fast forward. You know, you might catch the beginning of a commercial by mistake because you didn't fast forward through it. But if, if even a second of it catches your attention, you might watch the whole commercial, which is a story, right? But, or you might fast forward because it didn't catch your attention. And just the sophistication it takes for a person to do that indicates how tuned in we are to stories. You know, like you, you turn on, you're, you're surfing the channels and you run across a news bit and you hear a couple of words and you go to the next channel because I don't want to hear that story again. I've heard it, I've heard it enough. Or I, I can't stand this guy's story. You know, I always thought the most typical human question, most characteristic human question is, what is your story? And if we, if we face people from you know, another planet, that would be our first question, and it would be their first question, unless they already knew our story. <coughs> but in our case, we'd want to know, what is your story? And first question on a date, right? Like, you, you, go on, you finally agree to go on a date because you want to know, like, what is your story? And after the date, you go, you know, I didn't like her story. Just didn't like her. Didn't like her story. Didn't get it. What happens with the jury? You know, the two attorneys telling stories. The jury has to decide which, which of the two stories do they buy which they, they don't buy. So the fact that we're just surrounded by stories, I think uh, means that storytelling is probably the number one human science that everyone needs to learn and know. And the more you know it, the better you are. I mean, you can tell a story in, you know, in a couple of lines. Like one of the <laughs> shortest stories in American literature is Richard Rodigan's, I think it was called, uh, uh, the Scarlatti Tilt, and it goes like this. Have you tried living in a one-room apartment with a man who's just learning to play the viola? That's what she asked the police when she handed them the empty revolver. You know, the whole story is there, right? And uh, one of my favorite jokes is, uh, I want to die peacefully in my sleep, like my grandfather, and not like the passengers in his car, in the car he was driving. You know, so there's a, a three-act story in one sentence, and, you know, you get it. You don't have to tell a 20-minute joke to get the point across. And jokes, so jokes are stories, commercials are stories, songs are stories, and songs become hugely popular because they tell a story that millions of people are relating to at that moment in time. Uh, so it's very exciting to be, you know, in this world of storytelling and, and seeing masters of it you know, coming along. What about the artist as the anti-hero, whether it's the writer, the musician, the filmmaker, where their own backstory makes them the anti-hero? And so maybe people gravitate toward their work more if they knew they had more of a cookie-cutter existence and they write this great thing. Well, okay. Yeah, he had a charm life. It was easy for him. But if somebody has more of a, an anti-hero sort of arc to their own life and they're putting out work, do you think people gravitate toward them more? You know, I really don't get your question. <laughs> oh, okay. It, it's very esoteric, and it feels like you're in a graduate seminar, and, oh, no. and okay. I'm going to fail because no, I, no. I didn't even get it. Oh, okay. I, I, all I can think of is portrait of, a, of the artist as a young man. Um, 
But yeah, try it again. Okay, sorry. I think it's my San Francisco influence is, is <laughs> seeping out. Sorry. Someone like a John Lennon, okay? We know he had his own troubles. He had his troubles with the government. He had different things going on, turbulent love affairs, different things. But it made him more interesting. Would we have been as drawn to him? Absolutely. I, I don't think, I mean, that's really his kind of post story in a sense because we didn't know who the Beatles were at the beginning, right? We didn't have any idea who they were. We just fell in love with their music. And uh, did, did it make them more interesting when we started finding out that they had lives and crazy girlfriends and, you know, uh, feelings about the government? Uh, no, actually, it made them more human, and, which is not necessarily a good thing for an artist. You know, the, the, in the tradition of the Catholic Church, artists could say they were divinely inspired. And uh, that was cool. I mean, that was really good PR. That was like very good spin to have. Uh, but when you found out that they really weren't divinely inspired or that they were inspired by the devil, then that could be good spin too. But it, what, what happens is that when a piece of art catches you, it catches you, I think, completely separate from its maker uh, because it's it's like a living thing that suddenly, you know, exists. I mean, I'll never forget my first reaction to yesterday, you know, that amazing song by Paul McCarthy, I think, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that I don't know who wrote it. it it's but... like the minute you finish hearing the song, you go, that song always existed. I've never heard it before, and they say it was just released, but that is an eternal song. And, and that's the power of a work of art because it's, it is now part of, you know, it's alive. It, it will go on living for some time. We don't know how long, but some time. And uh, that, when you think about it, I don't, has very little to do with the artist, very little to do with your knowledge of the artist. And when you start knowing things about the artist, it starts a bit deflating your view of the art uh, it's funny because I used to run a poetry series at Occidental College and I could invite all my favorite poets like Bukowski to my series. And uh, I learned that that was a two-edged sword. In some cases, I loved it, like Bukowski, but in other cases, I won't mention, um, <laughs> when I discovered that the guy is just a, a drunken, miserable, egocentric guy who, who has all these prima donna needs and so on, and he's just a poet, you know, coming to read at a college. <laughs> I couldn't read his poetry the same way anymore. And I thought, you know, thank God I didn't invite, you know, some really favorite poets of mine that I hadn't invited yet, because I don't want to find out what they're like. Um, and that's kind of the way I feel about it. It's like the artist and his work are two separate things. If you create a great work, it goes its own route. And knowing about him is, you know, Maybe it's a plus, maybe it's a minus, but in any case, if I had to choose, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. And I don't believe at all in the kind of academic approach that says you have to understand the artist in order to understand the art. I don't really think that's true. I think you have to understand the, the society that the art appears in before you can understand the art. But I don't think you can understand, you know, you need to understand the artist. And I also have a real hard time dealing with okay, let's revise the past and say that all of Woody Allen's films are forbidden because he's a creep. Um, you know, I, I just have a real problem with that because those films live on their own, in my opinion, and uh, have nothing to do with 
with Woody Allen anymore. He created them. Um, and I, I think that's true all the way back to the beginning of time is that uh, we don't have to know who Homer is in order to understand the power of the Iliad or the Odyssey. You know, as, as some professor said years ago, the Iliad and the Odyssey were not written by Homer, but by someone else with the same name, you know, or the Shakespeare controversy. Like, who cares who, who Shakespeare was? His plays are amazing. And uh, yeah, it's curious to know more about him, but nothing I could learn about Shakespeare would change my mind about his plays. Um, I might change my mind about his plays based on something else, but not on what I knew about the artist. So that's how I feel about, you know, learning about the artist. I don't think we need to. You don't think it romant romanticizes who they are? Let's take someone like a Marvin Gaye, and you, and you hear his stories, and he was on top for a while, he wasn't, he went away, I guess, to Europe, or, or forget where he went, then he came back and was starting to get his career back, and then tragedy ensues. So does that make us more attracted to his work? Not me. No? <laughs> no. I mean, it might make me curious enough to look at it, but then when I do, let's say I've never heard his work before, right? And I, I then go listen to it because I heard something. I, first of all, I find it hard to listen to it objectively, and therefore I kind of resent that this is the way I came to him. Hmm. You know, and, and let's say, you know, Rainier Marie Rilke is a poet I love. Like I learn something about him and I go read his poems and I read it now through the lens of what I learned about him. And I don't like that way. I, I like to look at the work of art itself. And I used to teach a course in which I showed, you know, examples of works of art and asked the class what they thought they were worth. And I showed old Babylonian uh, statues along with electrical circuitry and along with, you know, strange mix of images and a slideshow. And it was very interesting to see what the class reactions were to something they knew nothing about, nothing. Because then during the rest of the course, it was about learning about these different things. Which one was ancient, which one was now, which was a work of art on purpose, which one is just interesting looking. And uh, artists, it, it really comes down to uh, artists what people agree is art. And the purity of that is why I think create, create, creative people are superior in a strange way to the media because that's just a pure thing, like you created this, is it, is it something people embrace or not? If they do, then, you know, it's very, very interesting. You know, it's, it's a successful work of art. I'm not saying a work of art has to be successful because some works of art are not yet successful. Like Moby Dick didn't sell more than, I think, 12 copies during Melville's life. And then 20 years after he died, it became a bestseller. Uh, and that's because the world of 1906, when it became a bestseller, was ready for it. You know, it was right in that world, and it wasn't ready yet for it in Melville's world. But it was a work of art even before that. Some people recognized that and saw it that way. So, I mean, I, uh, we could go on about this forever, but I, I, I don't like the what I call the biographical uh, fallacy of having to know about the artist. In fact, in fact I think it's a deterrent. And therefore, it makes it very clear to me that when people are trying to reject a person's art, you know, career of art because he did something bad, 
um, that just seems nonsense to me. Like to me, artists are kind of sacred, and even priests do bad things, right? But they're still supposedly sacred, and uh, we're just living in this post-truth world where everything you say is fraught with difficulty because you're going to offend somebody no matter what. Um, <clears throat> and I think we need to get by that so we can keep talking because otherwise we're all going to lapse into kind of terminal silence. Well, today's Esquire, or today's Twitter sort of brouhaha was about the Esquire cover, which, and I'm butchering what it was about, but the life of sort of the white middle-class male teen in the age of social media. It shows a young boy in a, a room that, you know, looks like a middle-class home or whatever. Okay, that's fine. But I guess then, yes, we're leaving out many people, women included, whatever. I'm not totally offended by it. If we figure out a certain group of people's thoughts, motivations, whatever, I, then maybe we can figure out other things and, and to have a dialogue about it. But, I mean, people were very upset over it. And, and so we, we're in this new age where somebody's upset about something every day and has got to... Yeah, but here, here's the thing that everybody, you know, people are upset all the time, but the reason it feels that way to us <clears throat> is because of social media and communications. You know, this, I'm mean, sure it's always been that way from the beginning of time. People are upset all the time about everything, but we didn't know that, you know? It, it took letters months and months to get across the oceans, right? And before that, there weren't even letters. How, and how much upset can you show in a smoke signal, right? <laughs> but in today's world, every little upset gets tweeted, you know, gets emailed, gets texted, and people are upset all the time. So we are in a very challenging frontier of communication where we have to learn how to continue talking given the fact that every single word you choose can be objected to by somebody. You know, I, I, somebody, one of my apprentices read a screenplay the other day and, and, and said she absolutely loved it, but you must take out the word raping on page 96 because when raping is used in a non-sexual way to say the raping of Inca civilization, for example, you are going to terribly hurt somebody in the audience who has experienced it on a personal level. And uh, truthfully, you know, the screenplay was written 10 years ago before the Me Too movement and that particular sensitivity came to the fore. And but we're, we're at the point where there isn't a word anyone could say that wouldn't upset somebody somewhere. And thank God for comedians because they, they have a way of turning that into fun, you know, for us all, thank God. But uh, we all need to deal with that because otherwise we will lapse into silence or we will lapse into diatribes, which is what's going on now where all we do is yell at each other and we don't really listen because we know we can't actually talk. You know, three people can't talk. Two people can possibly talk. I find with, you know, my friends, like you go with three people, gotta be kind of careful. Four people for sure. Two people can actually talk, even if they're violently opposed to each other. But uh, we're losing the ability to communicate because you know, people say, I was really offended by the tone of your email. What? <laughs> the tone of my email? Like how, I, I'm so ingenious that I put a tone into my email. I was just like typing letters and, and there were just six words and you thought there was a tone? <laughs> well, this is the world we're living in and it's why it's so challenging. Your thoughts on work-life balance? <laughs> 
Well, if you don't see a difference between work and life, it's hard to figure out how to answer that question. But uh, I guess my basic view of it is that work is what you get to do when you're not living. And uh, so therefore, whenever life interrupts work, it makes me happy because, you know, grandkids are coming this weekend and what could be better. But, you know, if it weren't for work, life would just kind of swallow you up and spit you out at the end of the day. So work is what I do when I, you know, when I get to. And the balance is simply to uh, let life do what it has to do. Like the other day, one of my friends father died and although I didn't know him I I just decided I had to go to the to the funeral even though it was a day where I had you know a couple of pitches at the studios and so on but I just drove out to to the to the funeral because that's okay and I didn't think about work <coughs> all day and um, and I didn't complain <coughs> as I usually do that I didn't get any work done that day because once in a while you do have to pay your your regards to life and recognize that it's there. But when I think about how many people <clears throat> say they want to work uh, and do work and don't do it, uh, and I go, what are you doing? They go, well, life just keeps happening. And I, I don't quite understand that because that person has the same amount of time that I do and that we all do. And it's a matter of choice at a certain point. I mean, you can, I mean, we, we travel, we love to eat out, we love to do home things, we love to cook, we love to do all the things that people, a lot of people like to do, but we both, you know, my wife and I both work very hard um, because we love what we do. And um, so I don't know, I, I, it's a very interesting question, but I'd, uh, <clears throat> I'd love you to be more specific about what you mean by it. I'm thinking of um, an interview I heard with Alice Monroe, and she said she felt like she had missed out on a lot of life because even though she became a writer later on in her life, I guess, um, she just had spent so much time writing. And so she was going to finally get to a point where she was going to stop. And she stopped for a year, and she went right back to writing. So her feeling like maybe so much of her life had been dedicated to work and then feeling like she'd missed out on life, but then realizing that the work was really the life. I don't know. I, yeah. Maybe I'm sounding again like my, no, that, my that's, graduate. That's, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's exactly the right kind of complication when it comes to asking that question because the people who love their work, the type C personalities like Alice Monroe, uh, their life is their work. It's like a vocation. You know, it's like a calling. And if you don't do it, you're not living. Uh, when you're not doing it, uh, you are alive, but if you are not doing it on a regular basis, then you are not living your life. You're living someone else's life or you're living, you know, anyone's life. But the artist is somebody who lives their life, you know, their own specific life that, that she's shaped for herself. And, and, and that's why it's an interesting question to anybody who's involved in, in creative affairs because have I ever thought that way that I'm missing out on life? You know, maybe for a total of six or seven seconds in my life, I thought that. Uh, I have had other thoughts, like I could be, I could spend more time suffering. It's a strange thought, right? But I had three sisters, and they all stayed in my hometown, <clears throat> and I didn't. And so they did a lot of suffering 
with the family and plenty of occasions for it with 40 relatives around and something was always going on. And I felt like I could really be part of that. But then I, I remember very distinctly, that's the reason that I wanted to leave because I didn't want to be just doing that, which I saw all around me as I was growing up. I thought, you know, nothing outside the box is happening here. People are just being, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm totally all in favor of, you know, people and families who uh, are on the phone all day with the latest person's accident or the latest person's diagnosis of this or that and what are we going to do and the plans for this and that. I actually love all that stuff and when I'm there I'll be in the kitchen you know with the, mostly the women talking about this rather than the men watching a game in the, in the other room. I'm torn because I love that but I also distinctly knew that I had to get away from that. Uh, that, I, that, they, uh, that I couldn't let that consume me. Because at the end of the day, I always believed with those people who say the one thing that you can't live with at the end of the day is the things that you might have done. You know, the, wishing that you had done a lot of stuff that you didn't do. Well, I never had that problem. You know, all of my dreams have become uh, plans and, and or movies or books or trips. You know, they, I just always did something about them. And somehow it's all worked out. I go to family reunions, but I'm not, I'm not gonna stay for four weeks. Uh, and I'm not being drawn into all that except at the big moments. And uh, maybe it's total selfishness. I think there is an element of selfishness in creativity. Um, and selfishness is, is maybe just an ordinary word for it, but there might be more euphemistic words for it. Uh, self-determination or something. Narcissism would be the worst word for it because there are a lot of narcissists in the creative world who are mostly unbearable, I think. But um, you do have to be willing to be yourself, which a lot of people are not prepared to do. Uh, a lot of people are nervous when you do it and, and try to keep you from doing it because they really wish they could do it, but they don't have the courage to do it because there aren't any, uh, there aren't any uh, railroad tracks that mark it out clearly. You know, how are you gonna get to where you're going? I don't know. Well, then that's, that's very, no. Don't you think that's very troubling? Uh, I think it's very exciting. Yeah, I don't think it's troubling. I think it's exciting. I think I can do it. And uh, that makes people nervous, you know, people who are, doing their thing in a continent way, a continent of reason, traditional way. They're nervous when people are gonna live above a garage and practice, you know, the drums until they're famous. That makes them nervous. And probably, well, it should. I mean, if my own daughter had told me she wanted to be an actress, I would have, you know, no, please. I would try to not have said that directly, but I would have had the same feelings that people have. So I, I think that you, uh, you have to be willing to be yourself. And my justification or rationalization for that is that, you know, the universe, if you believe in any kind of a higher force, did create you. And if you're not doing the thing that you're dreaming of doing, then you're failing not just yourself, but the whole universe, the rest of us too. Like if you're a storyteller and that's what you're meant to be and you're not telling stories, because you're afraid of this or that, um, then you failed 
yourself, you failed your dream, and you failed all of us to whom your story might be life-saving or the funniest story they ever heard. And you failed the universe that created you to dream about telling stories. I used to have students who would have weird things like this. I, I really want to go to junior year in Paris, but I'm, I'm afraid of feeling guilty if I do it. And I go, why would you feel guilty? Well, because my parents would have to pay for it and, and my, my brothers and sisters didn't get to do that. And so I go, wait a minute, let me think this through with you. You're afraid of guilt, right? Okay, what is guilt? What do you mean? Well, it's, isn't guilt a kind of mental thing? Isn't it kind of imaginary? I know it's powerful, but it is imaginary, like most powerful things in human life, right? Yeah, well, so isn't it fear of guilt? also imaginary? Yeah. So either way, you're going to be dealing with an imaginary problem, right? You're going to go to Paris and feel guilty in the, past, in the future, which is speculative anyway, or you're going to stay here and feel bad for not going. So it seems to me the choice is obvious. Go there, feel guilty if you do, and deal with it. And that kind of thinking is what make somebody decide to break out of the pack and pursue a creative life. Uh, if they can't think their way through that, then they just should stay home and, you know, do the job at the grocery store, or whatever it is that, that will make them feel not challenged by that. Lastly, what about the fear of, I think Norman Mailer said, fear of mediocrity. He was talking about how a lot of colleges train people to, to want sort of a mediocre existence. I'm not sure if that's true, they just maybe stability, but then there's a, a, a mediocrity with some of that. Uh, <laughs> you know, Flannery <laughs> O'Connor said that the problem isn't that colleges aren't, you know, inspiring people to become writers. The, the problem is that colleges are inspiring too many people to become mediocre writers. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether Norman Mailer was influenced by her, she was influenced by him, but um, mediocrity is a, is a retroactive judgment. It's not something you strive for, uh, right? So it's something you, if you're talking about artists, uh, he's a mediocre, mediocre artist, well that's, you can't make that judgment until it's all done. Uh, in, in the case of Melville, for example, you can't even make it then because when it was all done, he was buried and nobody knew who he was, but then 20 years later, he's had become the greatest American novelist. Um, so what that tells you is that the artist can't think about things like that. You, you can't think about whether you're, what you're doing is excellent or not. You have to strive for excellence, because if you don't strive for that, you'll never get anywhere near it. But you don't judge yourself based on any of those criteria, because that's not your job. Your job is to do your art and uh, do that as well as you can at the moment, the best you can at the moment, and let the world judge it or not judge it. Who cares? Your joy and your mission in life is to do the creative work. And, and that's all you have to worry about. Let everybody else make up their minds. And the fear of doing that, uh, I mean, the strength to do that means you've got to have a sufficiently healthy ego not a huge ego or a little ego, which causes people to be egotistic, but you have to have a sufficiently healthy one to truly not care uh, what other people think. I, I once was getting divorced and you know was worried about my children and you know what the world would think and everything else. And 
and I was standing on, uh, talking on the phone, looking out city of LA at a million lights, right? And my uncle was saying, just remember that nobody is really thinking about you most of the time. There are some people out there who you know, know who you are, and of them, there are some who love you, and there are probably some who hate you. But most of the people out there don't even know who you are. So relax, you know, and that is very relaxing, is to think that, you know, no matter who you are, there are other people who don't know who you are. Uh, it constantly amazes me that people today haven't heard of half the great artists of the past. But so what? Just if you do something creative, focus on that, and it will make sense out of the rest of your existence. And that's all anyone can really manage, I think, is their own existence.